Hey y'all, this is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. Today we are talking about Israel. Just the name can spark a wide range of emotions in people. Anger, hope, joy, nostalgia, confusion. Jews, Gentiles, Blacks, Whites, Progressives and Conservatives, and everything in between all seem to have opinions on Israel, Zionism, the Jewish state, however you want to frame it. Our next guest puts a face to the Zionist movement many might not expect to see. Pastor Dumasani Washington is the founder and CEO of the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel. He is also the former Diversity Outreach Coordinator for Christians United for Israel. Pastor Dumasani is a husband, former homeschool dad, grandfather, church planter, and professional musician. His latest book is the second edition of Zionism in the Black Church, Why Standing with Israel Will Be a Defining Issue for Christians of Color in the 21st Century. Visit IBSI.org for information not just on his organization and the work they do, but details on his Ipsy Ambassador Program, which is now accepting applications, the upcoming Ipsy Pastors Program, and events such as The Gathering, which is a ticketed gala event on Sunday, September 10th in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'll be there, so come through. This will definitely just be the first in a series featuring Pastor Dumasani as we barely broke the surface on all the controversy around Israel and spent a fascinating two hours unpacking Pastor Dumasani's personal metaphorical and literal journey to Zion. I am so pleased to introduce our next guest and personal friend of mine, Pastor Dumasani Washington. Remember, there is no such thing as the Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. Pastor Dumasani Washington, I am thrilled to have you on today. We first connected, full disclosure, we first connected over our kind of interest and passion in education, homeschooling in particular, and I have come to get to know you and your family better and love everything that you do. And I feel like I could bring you back on and just talk about fatherhood and marriage and the family and all that kind of good stuff. And you were homeschooling before it was cool, especially before it was cool with black people back in the 90s, in the early 2000s. We could talk about that. You have six kids, wonderful marriage, wonderful family, but that's not actually your your professional area of expertise. You are the founder and CEO of the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel, which is a pro-Israel Zionist organization. And um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're going to dig into today. And it's still a fairly young organization, though I know that your that your participation in this space is has been longer than Ipsy's existence. And so, you know, you weren't born a Zionist. You weren't born probably even really thinking too much about Israel. I know that's not like you weren't raised by parents that were involved in this movement at all. So I want to start at the beginning because I think a lot of our audience either have strong feelings about Israel one way or the other. They're overwhelmed by the issue and they kind of just are like, I don't even know where to begin. Or they're just confused. Why do I need to care about this? Why do black people need to care about this? I mean, it's another country. It's, I mean, I don't want people to suffer, but I've got my own problems here. So we're going to kind of unpack all of that here today, hopefully. <laughs> this could be a really long podcast, I guess, if we unpack all things Israel. Um, but let's just start at the beginning. Let's start with your background that you touch on in your book, Zionism in the Black Church, which I which I have read and I highly recommend to anybody who's curious about this topic. You touch on your, your family history and your background a little bit. I think we're going to dig into it a little bit more because I think it's important for people to see how you personally took on this journey and went on this journey of discovery and changing some of your theology and views on, on everything, really. So let's start out with, I know your family's from the South originally. You ended up in California. Let's start there. 
Uh, yes, ma'am. So, Connie, thanks for having me on and, and appreciate all the work that you do, uh, both in your personal writings and your free black thought as well. It's amazing uh, forum and everything. So thanks a lot for having me. Um, so, yeah. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, born um, uh, not by the river, but I was actually born in Arkansas. <laughs> I always hear that song in my brain. Uh, in the late 1960s, 1967, Little Rock, Arkansas, North Little Rock, Arkansas. It was still the segregated South at the time, although the civil rights movement, particularly the landmark uh, decisions of or 64 and 65 uh, had already taken place. But obviously, you know, those who know American history, uh, there was much Jim Crow still very much alive and well in the 60s and the 70s when you go particularly into some of the uh, parts of the South. So. Uh, but I was raised in California, so I was born uh, the, the youngest of seven children, David Lilly in Washington, a blessed memory. Uh, I was the youngest of seven, uh, but um, in the late 60s or yeah, later on, about 68, um, I was still a baby. My parents moved out to San Francisco, California, and I tell people that's how you know how old I am. I'm 56 years old now. I'm old enough to remember when California was still a place that people were moving to, young families, right? <laughs> Right, trying to put a roof over their heads and everything. No joke. So, Pete, now the, the opposite is happening now, but that's another discussion for another day. Uh, so, we were in San Francisco, um, and then we lived there for a few years. My dad's job moved from San Francisco to the Valley, which is Stockton, California, and that's where I grew up. Um, and so, uh, though I did not grow up in the South, uh, my parents brought Little Rock and Pine Bluff and all these other areas with us in their stories, right? My story very much like anyone else's who's listened to their parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles and everything. We had a big family. My mom had two other sisters who had already moved out to California before her. One, her oldest one, was not able to have children. That was auntie, we call her auntie. She's also my godmother. Uh, but her other two, her other sister and her both had seven children apiece. So there's 14 mm. of us cousins. Yeah. So yeah. auntie had a hand in raising all of us, her and uncle, right? So they, they did not have biological children themselves. We were all their children and they helped raise and it very much was the village, right? I grew up in that way. So black fathers and churches and pastors and deacons and business owners and leaders and all of those things, none of those things were were foreign to me, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so the, the, the stories about Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, my mom, she knew the families of the Little Rock of the uh, Little Rock now, the, the Central High School. Those who desegregated Central High School um, was very much aware and talked about civil rights community, uh, civil rights movement, but not in a sterile way. My mom, Connie, and I know we probably unpack this a little bit. She talked about her love of her community, right, and mm -hmm. and she did it in a way that let you know that she was no longer there, right? She longed for it. My family, my older brothers particularly, who went to junior high school, everything all the way to Arkansas, they lamented the fact that we moved, right? They it, Every once in a while, they would say things like, I wish we'd never left Arkansas, right? Because it was mm. a very different world in California, right? We were, uh, the, the town that we lived on, the schools, they, they were never the only ones surrounded by white people, right? They knew it was to be around white people in the South, obviously, right? But um, but they had their community. They had their churches. They had their everything. My mom's school, Scipio A. Jones High School, as I talk about in my book, it was the pride of Arkansas. I mean, the doctors, lawyers, policy, all these people graduated from the school. So my mom, it was, it was like watching the Cosby show or Different World, 
but it was real, mm-hmm. right? This was actually, yeah. there was no, like, oh my God. But So the term black excellence was not a term we used in our, because excellence didn't need a qualifier, right? It, it exactly. was, it, it was yeah. no weird thing about a black, you know, professional doing X, Y, and Z, right? It was just, it was what it was. As a matter of fact, they took pride in outdoing sometimes the white community. My mom's high school, like many, sometimes segregated high schools, their test scores oftentimes outpaced some in the white community that was segregated from there. You, you often had that. And they took pride, not that they were focusing on that, right? But their focus was, we're going to do our best. We know that we live in a society that things were second class. So remember, those who are my age and older will remember, they used to tell us you had to be twice as good, right? Twice as good, meaning hit the mark, but also know that you are going to be looked at and judged differently because you're black. And then you have to go and exceed that. And they exceeded all those things. So I was just used to seeing those things. They wanted to go back to Arkansas. It's because it was more that was more prevalent in Arkansas than because you were so young and you say you're saying you saw all that excellence. Right. Where was the divide? That was that was amazing to me because I'm listening to them say that not being able to compare it. Right. I can't compare Stockton or San Francisco to Little Rock or anywhere in the South. I'm just listening to them. And for them, generally speaking, especially my brothers, they felt it was more cohesive. They felt there was more more numbers, obviously, in terms of number. I mean, when you come to the Black community, to this day, it's funny, even after the waves of migration from the South, the largest uh, Black population still remain in the South, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the time you're migrating out to the West Coast, whether it's the LA area or the Bay Area, uh, you had large Black communities there, but nothing relatively compared to uh, New York, a Chicago, right? Or even uh, yeah. in terms of the South, especially. So for them, they missed their high school. They missed their friends. They missed, they missed the types of churches. Again, there was a cultural experience that they never would have contrasted had they not moved to a West Coast. Now, I don't want to say, but before anybody's listening, oh, you hate San Francisco. I love San Francisco and they, and there are aspects of it that they love, right? I mean, they went to James Dimon High School and then they went to Stag High School in, in, in Stockton. So anybody who's from those areas of the country, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so they had friends, right? They, they they had their lives and everything. We did churches, not like they were hermits or anything. But I, I think that it was part of us. It was a nostalgia thing, right? Sometimes you just remember the past as better, even if it wasn't better, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, but for them, definitely it was community, right? But to, to a person, they probably would have said they felt that there was a broader healthier, um, more uh, a, a very Black community that you had in the South. And for people, again, who don't understand, I understood this from my parents and particularly from my mother. They may be listening and say, well, I thought there was Jim Crow. And there was racism. Absolutely Jim Crow racism. What I've heard that older generation say is that, you know what? I would prefer a blatant racist who would call me all kind of names so I know who you are then the smile in your face all the time, want to take your place, the fake racist. So for them, they expressed, they experienced the the blatant racism and they experienced the progressive racism. The progressive racism mm. is that I'm cool with Connie. I like Connie. Connie's cool. And it's just a little bit too much. It's a little bit too much. I keep telling how Connie how I'm comfortable. I'm so totally comfortable with black people. That's usually a person's pretty racist because they keep having to bring up the fact that right. you're black and it right that for them that was not that the south didn't do that they would call you nigger and keep keep it pushing right so right, like going right. okay i know who he is so he's i'm gonna keep him over there 
I have my shotgun, he's got his shotgun. So we all kind of understand each other. So there's not that there was, it was more cut and dry. This person's racist. When they got out, it was a different thing. I hope that makes sense. Did your siblings end up leaving when they became adults? Did they go back to the South? What happened? It never did. It's so funny. They didn't. So the oldest was probably, they're in their teens. I was obviously a baby, so I was 15, 16, somewhere around in there. They never did. They acclimated in that sense, right? Like many so did at San Francisco first and then Stockton. That was another thing too. Not, I mean, for them, I can only imagine. I mean, my brothers and I have talked about it, my older brothers, right? Because now you adjust to San Francisco. Now you move out to the Valley, right? So that's, you know, you made a move, right? From North Arkansas to San Francisco, right? And then to Stockton. Uh, but no, they never moved. When they, they grew up, they had kids, they got married and everything. And to a person stayed on the West Coast at some point, like me, they became West Coast kids, right? And so they would visit back at home. They would go see our cousins and everything like that. But at some point for them, uh, even though it was a contrast, it means something of a contradiction, California became home. And I know that for me, that was the case because I was only a baby anyway. So I only knew California, right? But no, they never never moved back. They, They would just kind of talk about what they felt that they missed or what used to be. Okay, so you mentioned you know, obviously the community is kind of what they were longing for. Mm-hmm. Um, the the black churches or just churches in general were, were different in California than in the South. Can you unpack that a little bit? Actually, I love kind of, I don't know if it's a disclaimer, but, you know, your book is called Zionism and the Black Church. But you're like, there is no black church. There's right. just the church, right? God doesn't see us is like, those are my black people. Those are my white people. Those are my Asian people. He doesn't do that. But we still all find ourselves using the term black church. So can you talk about maybe the difference and then what kind of religious home you were raised in and the theological background of your parents and and the environment that you grew up in? Sure. Um, And obviously these are all general generalities. Um, just like you mentioned, and I explained in my book what black church means, that how I'm using it, and and what the actual universal church is. Obviously, every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue, as John says in the Book of Revelation. Uh, but generally speaking, you're talking about a cultural reality, um, uh, to a certain degree spiritual as well. I know we'll unpack it theologically. Um, in a general sense, when you're talking about black church that came up in the South, particularly during slavery and post-slavery church. This was one whose preaching style was often uh, indicated by um, issues of justice. Um, uh, Thoughts in terms of preaching where heaven was concerned, we're going to labor, we're going to toil, but there's a reward for us. Uh, This is why those songs would often talk about the Jordan crossing the Jordan. They would talk about uh, the promised land. They talk about Canaan. It was all, there was always even more than double entendre, right? Whatever the, the, the uh, French word for the triple is. I used to know a little bit of French anymore, but there'd be different meanings for these terms, right? Uh, Moses represented an abolitionist in terms of the older, Harriet Tubman, for example, was called Moses, right? Uh, The songs of liberty, the songs of uh, liberation, the songs of freedom, they they, they spoke to both the oppressed condition of the Black family but then the hope that can only come from something beyond themselves, God, his faithfulness and those types of things, which what's forged in that that dichotomy is a black family whose resilience, even uh, I, I mentioned in the book, as you know, Thomas Sowell, the economist 
said that the black community went from 0% literacy to over 50% literacy in less than 50 years post-slavery, something that economic historians say has, is completely remarkable, right? How, mm-hmm. how did a people that had been enslaved for centuries at that point win their emancipation, fought for their own freedom within the Civil War, right? You have these black regiments in the war, right? Yeah. And then after that, by the time you get to the early 1900s, you have black Wall Streets. What? what? Wait a minute. They're not just mm-hmm. doing okay. No, don't get me wrong. People say, oh, you make it sound all... No, no, there's plenty of poverty. Lynch laws had not put in place. No, I'm saying you're talking about systemic racism, not just the term systemic racism, but the actual systemic yeah. race, right? But still these people are thriving, becoming doctors, lawyers, and, and, and all these business people and oil barons and these types of things. And not just in Tulsa, as I said before, but in different places throughout Oklahoma and the country, right? What black leaders would have told you, and they did tell you over and over again, that it was God, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, one of my favorite examples of it when it comes to both your question, Connie, black church, um, and then we'll, and we'll go further theologically, was as a musician, especially appreciating what was the poem and the song of Lift Every Voice and Sing. Um, and I would tell younger people, it's unfortunate that Lift Every Voice and Sing or the Black National Anthem, which is what Booker T. Washington called it first, and then they did the NAACP, and they weren't calling it that to replace the National Anthem of America. They were saying that this is our anthem. If people mm-hmm. understand the lyrics to that song, particularly in the last of the three stanzas, James Weldon Johnson, is he's imploring the Black community to remember that God, the God that brought them out. The same way that Moses said to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and when you get into the land, you live in houses that you did not build, you drink from wells that you did not dig, you eat from vineyards that you did not plant. When you get full, having eaten all the blessings that I've given you, make sure you don't forget me. Here are Mm -hmm. black fathers at the turn of the 19th century. 1899 is when Lift Every Voice and Sing was written, right? There was no Black civil rights movement that we know of today, right? But they're still saying, wow, look how far you brought us. Our future is bright. That whole thing. When I say Black church, that's the tradition that I'm actually talking about. It doesn't shy away from what the hurt the, the, the trauma, the, um, the, the amazingly horrific things that happened, but in the midst of that rising like a phoenix from the ashes, themselves saying, God has done this amazing thing for us. We have to remember them, remember what he's done, remember his blessings. That's how you had families intact, right? By 1960, there's yeah. like almost 80% of black families have a mother and father married to each other, raising children. Yeah. I got you, you think, okay, wait a minute, these people are enslaved, right? right? Now they have black codes, Jim Crow. How do they have intact families? at a higher percentage of the white community, right? They would tell you to a person, God, God has been good to yeah. us. God has been faithful to us, which is a many one of those parallels when it comes to our Jewish brothers and sisters as well. So how do you think, do you think, how do you think people define black church today? It, like what's the difference if there is any? Well, again, generally speaking, so everything I'm saying is in generalities because there's always exceptions to any of these things. right? Because and I'm 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 working chuckling because uh, one of the next articles on our Substack will be I don't know what the title of it's going to be but it's going to be about the anti-Zionism embedded in today's progressivism Mm -hmm. and how that was an exploitation of our community. So suffice to say now that often (laughs) black church often is defined in more political terms, as you know. I just got through defining it in cultural terms, spiritual terms, biblical terms. Today, it would be 
more defined generally by politics, a certain brand of politics, anti-racism, uh, anti-white supremacy, those types of things, right? So black church would often con uh, uh, con uh, concern itself today more with political themes of doing good for the poor, right? However you define that, whether that's from the government standpoint or what, so whatever have you, um, it would be more defined as um, uh, opportunities for all. Um, it, there's a lot of a lot of social justice themes have been woven into what would be have traditionally been called black church. And so in my opinion, that's often what we'll see now, more of a political theme and, and even spiritual subjects, right? But very much tied to some sort of political reality, what that actually means. There's a reason why by the late 1960s, early 70s, when you walk into many Black religious homes, you see those souvenir plates of John F. Kennedy, you know, Martin Luther King and Jesus, yeah. right? They'd always be up on the thing, right? Because that was, un un for right or for wrong, right? That, that was pretty much what spirituality, what black church was, right? It was black church became defined as Democrat party type of thing. It became yeah. a, not just politics, but a partisan politics, right? So, you know, God was a Democrat and, you know, the devil's <laughs> Republicans, right? So that's pretty much. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I, I think actually, well, maybe this is more of a, maybe white people would more perceive it this way who've never been in a black church, but they, like what you're talking about, your kind of general definition from times past is about rhetoric and the core of the message. Um, and now it's, it's still rhetoric, rhetorical, but the core of the message has shifted. I think a lot of people see the black church as just a style. Like they have a, they imagine a guy kind of a like fire and brimstone kind of type. He's not, you know, he's not a quiet, the preacher's going to be kind of loud shouting. There's going to be a big choir, you know, people are going to be hooting and hollering in the, in the stands, you know, yes, that's yes. what people have. People don't even really, I think a lot of people don't even think of it past right. that. So I think actually your juxtaposition between is actually very enlightening between like, it's, it's not like a style. It's the, right. the rhetoric drives the style actually. Right. Well, yeah, no, I, well, what's funny, not to cut you off at all. I was, you, what I've seen, especially now at my age now, kind of looking at it and taking inventory as much as I, as I, as I can. Um, what I found is that there are some things that are so universal. Um, if I was in a congregation of, uh, and it was mostly black folk of a certain age, and I said, I love the Lord, he heard my cry, half of them would start singing with me. Another half of them would be like, what is actually going on with me, right? <laughs> um, or in that style of preaching and or singing that is very much rooted in the black American gospel tradition, Folks in that room, Republican or Democrat, left or right, would would almost fuse in that room around the spirit that was actually uh, 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 released in there. In other words, if it's a worship, I um, it, it has been amazing to me, particularly as a musician, that in the midst of any type of worship atmosphere for us was Christian. But now, if we're talking about in the context of Black church, um. I, I can hear Whitney Houston singing, I love the Lord. He heard my cry. There, I, there, there is, because culturally, stylistically, um, it is so embedded, certain songs, certain hymns, that 
it transcends to this day um, that there'll be a singing and a preaching or delivery style that regardless of anyone's political persuasion in the room, there would be a connection that would be there. Uh, and that Rhapsody may last for as long as that service lasts. They may go on to their separate things, but there would definitely be a connection there. And I've seen that throughout the decades that that's still very, very much true. I don't care if they're Black Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Catholics, Baptists, if they've been around any type of quote unquote Black church expression at all, they they would it would resonate with them as a familiar thing, a very uh, primal thing, if I can say it that way. Even people who are atheists or you, you ask people, what types of music do you like? And a lot of people say, I like all types of music except this or that. A lot of people might say, I don't really like Christian music. And you say, well, does that include gospel? They say, no, no, I love gospel. <laughs> like, even if they're an atheist, right? It's like, there's just well, something about it, right? Connie, it was our blessing and our curse, meaning that we define, so most of American music came out of Negro spirituals, right? They came out of, now again, it was a fusing of other kind. Germans brought their style. It wasn't like it was in a, it, it was in a vacuum, but mm -hmm. you didn't get country, rock and roll, R&B, none of that stuff without the roots of the black spirituals, right? That's where all that came from, the gospels and everything. So it's funny that when I say a blessing and a curse, that there's a unique singing style that is, but it's so funny, people can't put their finger on it, but they know when they hear Aretha Franklin sing, they're about to fall out on the floor, whether they're black or white or Hispanic, right? right. To this day, you put on an Aretha song and folks just lose it, right? Because yeah. it was not just the lyrics, right? But it's that black church sound that mm -hmm. became so universal. And I say blessing and curse because then you had even, you know, people there who had bad intentions accessing these amazing singers and musicians, right? Because it's a business, right? You have the one thing that's the whole, the spiritual thing and you're singing to God and you're encouraging each other. And then you also have the music industry, which is, can be, a, if anyone knows, a cutthroat industry, yeah. right? So it can kind of use you up and chew you up and spit you out type of thing. And so, yeah, I, I just want to take that aside to say, yeah, there was Black music and Black culture in that sense. Once again, coming out of the church helped define American music. I believe one yeah. of the uh, writers, was it the Rhapsody in Blue uh, um, um, composer, and I'm a music major and his name is escaping right now. Please forgive me because my brain is not working. One of them uh, actually had commented and said that without the black contribution, you really don't have an American. Jazz is the original American classical music. And where did it come from? Out of the same thing, the Negro spirituals, the all those other yeah. types of things. Right. So that is that is it's a gifting that God has given us. It doesn't mean that no one else can sing. And I, as a musician, I love all kinds of different styles. But like you said, there is something very different. <laughs> Yeah. The black yeah. Stuff. But yes, it's, it's like when there's a when there's a white or an Asian or Hispanic person or whatever who can, it's right. like, oh, when you see what they look like, yes. you're like, I thought I was listening to a black person. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> you what they knew what they were going to look like, and yeah. then they didn't look like that. You go, wow. And you give mad props. You're like going, oh man, you you nailed yeah. that style, right? So yeah, it's a compliment, yes, right? It's not an right. insult at all when somebody right. says, When right. you were singing, I thought you were black. Right, right, um, right, right. <laughs> okay. Yes, Specifically, the, let's unpack the theology that you grew up in now, because obviously that's a part of your journey to whatever, to what your theology has landed on now. So what type of church did you grow up in and what was your parents' involvement? And maybe take us through your faith journey. Did it ever waver? Were you, yeah, I was born and raised and I never, I was always a believer or, you know, kind of 
pinpoint the moments in time where maybe things start to shift or you started to question things or not question things, but just question your theology, et cetera. I know that's a lot, so we can go back and... <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'll, I'll do it a little bit reverse order. So I, I became a Christian. I made a profession of faith at a young age, maybe by the fourth or fifth grade. Um, and it wasn't... How do you, even... how do you now define Christi- Christian, actually? Because yes. some people would so... say... Mormons are Christian. Some people say right. Mormons are not Christian. So how do you define it's, it? I, I define it as someone who believes that Jesus Christ is the son of God, was crucified, dead, buried, raised again for their sins. And they claim his sacrifice for as their salvation. Can I do this? I'm trying to do it as, as much of a nutshell as I possibly can. And for me, I made that profession of faith. Uh, probably uh, somewhere between fifth and sixth grade. The reason, I hope I answered your first question uh, in terms of yep, Christian. Yep. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, for me, it was not a. Um, uh, it wasn't coming down to the church and shaking the preacher's hand. It just it happened when because I at a young age, and this will probably help set this tone. Um, this was just my journey. Um, I, my, my, again, raised in church. My dad was a deacon and he sang in the choir. And my mom was over the youth uh, departments and in the usher, not the usher, but the matrons, those like the deaconesses type of thing. Yeah. A very traditional black church. They wore, it would look like a synagogue, right? The women would sit on one side. And in fact, on the first Sunday where they're white, the men would wear their black ties, stuff like that. And then they would have communion and all these types of things. There was this very, very traditional thing. As I said in my book, I was raised, I was born in that situation. They knew I'm music, I was a probably musician in the beginning because I would sit on my mom's lap and I would rock and I would sway mm-hmm. and I was cool with the music. I was, uh, and when every time the preacher yep. got up to start to preach and I started yelling because, and because I wanted to hear the music, I, I'm assuming, right? I, you know, I, I didn't know I was a baby. I had no idea what I was doing, but I would look him right in the face and I would cry mm-hmm. and I gave him a complex. And again, I, I say in my book, I'm not joking. He was literally like, going, okay, where's that kid who used to always stare at me and and cry, right? So, but I mean, my mom, as I got older and started playing music, she said, okay, they figured that the music I was really just vibing on. And when I say music, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about, again, gospel music. So the, the a gospel style, now I'm talking about more old school, right? The themes were often, you know, uh, how I got over, my soul looked back and wonder how I got over the themes were Jerusalem, walking in Jerusalem, just like John, the see, the themes were, were, are, or uh, oh Mary, don't you weep, and 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 Zion. That there's always the spiritual Zionism that informed Black Church in terms of theology, in terms of music, preaching, teaching. Again, as I, I mentioned in my book, when Barack Obama during his first uh, term uh, uh, during the election season, he referred to himself as the Joshua generation, right? And he referred to the civil rights movement as the Moses generation, right? There was just something very old, right? There was a very, an old uh, uh, alliteration within the black church, right? That this next generation represented the ones that would the, the benefit from what the previous generation did, right? The understanding that those who laid down their lives for rights like voting and going to school, those types of things, knew that they may never live, obviously, to see the fruits of their labor, but we were the fruits of their labor. This was how mm-hmm. how cohesive everything was. So, But again, in the church context, it wasn't for me, there wasn't a lot of political talk. 
But there was yeah. this theme of God being a faithful God who delivered Daniel from the lion's den, who delivered the Hebrew boys from the fiery furnace, God who delivered David from Goliath. The deliverance was often a theme within the black church preaching and teaching because we were often the underdog, right? So there was always this understanding that God, he preserved the righteous. He would, those who cried out to him, he would he would answer, he would deliver, he would, he would bless. And so the songs and those themes were often in that way as well. And so for me, both loving music and becoming a musician at a young age as well, uh, and then having a profession of faith at a young age, this was something that was very deep and intimate for me. So Connie, I, my parents would buy us Bibles, all of us. Like again, I'm the youngest of seven, I have five brothers and one sister, right? So the seven of us all together, one of my brothers passed away. Um, and so we went to church all the time. I was a church baby. So everybody's listening to what I'm talking about. We were church like five days a week, right? For usher board meeting and choir rehearsal and all those types of things. And somebody was on the, on the finance board and da, 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 da. But it was very normal to me, right? You'd be there, mm -hmm. first one's there, last one's gone, all that stuff. What so, was the denomination? Baptist, which okay. was the largest domination in, within the American uh, society for the black community up until just maybe even recently. And there are other yeah. denominations, right? But there's, plus they split it off. There's the progressive Baptist and then there's the Southern Baptist and the, you know, but, right. but um, yes, we were, we were Baptist. We were members of King Solomon Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. That's still there today, right? Hmm. Um, so I would read my Bible at a young age. And this is what started for me. I can only say that in retrospect. When I read Connie, even though I was a Christian, very much loved Jesus and I would, you know, and I loved the, the stories, we go to Sunday school and everything. I read the Old Testament more than the New Testament. And it wasn't, no one told me that, right? No one said, you make sure you read Exodus and yeah. read on <laughs> I just would, right? So I read the gospels and I love the stories and the and the miracles and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, when I was a little kid, I read Revelation that always freaked me out. So I wouldn't read it very much. And it was scary to me. I didn't really get it. Um, but the patriarchs, right? I knew the story of Joseph and his brothers backwards and forwards by the time I'm in the sixth, seventh grade, right? And David, mm -hmm. and the, and David's struggle with Saul, his friendship with Jonathan, and these things fascinated me. All things Israel, all things Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, tribes of Israel had no idea. It makes more sense now, right? But it made no yeah. sense at all. And what I would do uh, my in my little spiritual journey is as a child, I would take things so literally. Jesus said in the scriptures that when you pray, don't pray as the people, you know, you're always trying to show themselves. Pray in your secret closet. I took that literally. I went into my closet in my room, closed my yeah. door, sat on my <laughs> shoes, and I'd be in there praying, right? So one day my dad's looking for me, right? He doesn't know where I am. I can't really hear him because I'm in my room. Not that we have a huge house. It's just that I'm in my room. The door's right. closed. And finally, my doors opened. Because it was back in the little house we had around in Stockton, it was not accordion doors, but I can't, they fold it up. They, they would fold when you open them, right? Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, he didn't say anything because I I realized at that point he was looking for me. I could tell by the look on his face. He didn't angry, he wasn't angry or anything. He just looked like this little guy's in the closet. He saw me with my Bible, right? I, he, And he didn't say anything. And I, I and as I got older, I said, oh, okay, he was probably like kind of a little freaked out, like going, okay, why is he... <laughs> Brain. He's like, oh, our son is a weirdo. Right, basically. Yeah. They, you know, so thank God my parents, they especially people, they kind of let me do me because and I tell people all the time because by the time they get to the seventh kid, they're like, you know what, whatever, right? Because we've, yeah. we've been there, done all of that. So just don't don't kill yourself. Don't, you know, try not to destroy anything. Um, and that was part of my journey, Connie, that um, there would be 
as a musician, then I later on as a music teacher and choir director and all of those things. It was very intimate for me. So the Israel part of it for me started young in that I always wanted to know, I'm always in the Torah or in the prophets, right? I just, all the time, right? Again, I didn't see it as weird. No one told me it was weird, which is why I'm grateful. because No one, no one said, noticed. Hey, no one no, no one said, hey, make sure you're reading the gospels too. Right. And they said it because I was something of a shy young person. So I was never really telling people, right? They'd see me read my Bible. Mm-hmm. But they weren't really looking over my shoulder in terms of which right. book it was, right? It, so there was never anything like that. Nothing ever happened to me while I was young to give me a stigma about being in the Old Testament, what our Jewish brothers and sisters called Tanakh. And I'm so grateful for that, right? Because I may have responded to that, right? Oh, wow, I'm not supposed to read this. I, let me go back to Mark and Luke, which I read. Again, I want to emphasize for people yeah. listening to this. I read the New Testament of the epistles and of whether they're by Paul, whether by Peter. I, absolutely, I did as a young kid. But I would find myself going back to the Tanakh over and over again. And again, not seeing it as weird. So I didn't try to resist it, right? It's like, oh, my God, right. I'm, I'm slipping into some sort of legalism because that's not what it was for me at all. Um, so that um, for me, uh, my first interaction was I talk about my book with someone Jewish, although I may have met someone Jewish as a, like in school that I didn't know, right, uh, was someone Israeli, actually, when I was in college, right? I'm in San Francisco, San Francisco Conservatory of Music. I meet a young man named Ariel. Um, and again, I tell that very embarrassing story in my book for a reason, right? I go ahead and put my stuff out there to share with somebody else that it may help them, that I immediately try to convert him. Mm-hmm. I did. No one ever told me that. I never went to any type of evangelistic meeting and say, when you meet a Jewish person, give them the Bible and tell them that Jesus, nothing that had never happened before. Right. Did you try or to I, convert people, generally speaking, who weren't no. Christians or did you just hone in on this guy because he was Jewish? I him, no, I had shared the gospel with other people and prayed with them. Absolutely. Right. But I had never, ever like, but, hey, what's your name? Connie? Connie? Really? Hey, Connie. That I just out of the blue, just start talking to you yeah. about something that I never was. I was never that type of person. Right. I was always more quiet and those conversations would kind of happen more organically, right? And I would pray for the person. And it would usually, particularly me, because I became a minister at a young age as well, that those conversations were usually facilitated by somebody's difficult season in their life, right? Hey, this is going on, this is going on. So and so, so what do you think? Do me signing, how do you say? And, and I was always that type of person. I, I I was the type of person that people would be drawn to me to share with me whatever was going on with them. Again, I didn't understand that at the time either. Later on, it made more sense in terms of a calling, if you will, right? Yeah. So, but for me, that was never the case. I had talked to people, but this was the first time I had ever, like, whipped out my evan- evangelistic card. Like, I'm going to, hey, you did. And it was a, so he was shocked and horrified because we had already become friends. It was earlier part of the school season, school mm-hmm. year. Uh, but, and we never really had, you know, religious conversations or whatever. But as soon as he told me he was from Israel, right? And, and, and it's funny, I, I've reflected on it now. That's what, 40 years ago now, right? I reflected on it often, and I think that for me, among many other things, besides wanting to share the gospel and that type of thing, right, was that when he said Israel, there was something to me, I go, wow, Israel, right? And my only very limited response was, Jesus was Jewish. Did you know Jesus was Jewish? Kind of like, yeah, he's Jewish, you're Jewish. Hey, you guys ought to get together type of thing. He's kind of <laughs> at me like, what are you doing, right? So I have no understanding of the hell that the church had put the Jewish people through. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about pogroms. I knew nothing about uh, forced conversions, nothing like that. Not, so he, being much more aware of the history of my faith than me, 
I, I, what I appreciate about to this day, he didn't yell, he didn't scream, like he just kind of distanced himself, right? He's kind of like, yeah. okay, this guy's trying to convert me. He's guys, you know, I thought he was a good guy, but he's kind of tripping, right? So he just kind of, boom. I, it was only in retrospect. I look, obviously, I'm going. Oh, okay. On my journey, where Israel's concerned, the Jewish people, the Jewish community, the relationships that I've had over the years, I look back and said, okay. When I was, I came to a certain point. I was okay. So not only was I trying to forcibly convert somebody, shove this gospel down their throats, right? But I was doing it with a Jewish young man who for him, my fate represents all kinds of bad, horrific things to his people. And my Mm -hmm. not knowing that, even though my heart may have been in the right place, quote unquote, was a complete affront to him and so that ignorance for me became something that it was a recurring theme in terms of our relationship as Christians with our Jewish brothers and sisters. And I don't say that in a, in a paternalistic way, like, let me tell all the Christians how they need to blah, 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 blah. There are certain themes that were there, right? But it was a very mm-hmm. personal journey for me. I'll say this one last thing as we're, I know you guys have a question, back up here. So that was in the, so REL was around 1985, 86, which was the, spring that I graduated from high school. That school year, 1984, November 1984, was when Operation Moses happened, right? When the Israeli government, uh, working obviously with their secret service, the Mossad, and these amazingly, uh, just these brave beyond measure Ethiopian Jews coordinating the airlift of the Ethiopians from who crossed the Sudan border and were being being brought home to Israel after millennia of being away um, in the diaspora. Um, I was headed out of the door. Literally, my mom was watching Peter Jennings' World News Tonight, this back in the day when there was three networks, uh, and they went off at 12 a.m. or 1 a.m. and there was no cable, nothing. My mom was watching the news. I was going out to go play ball with my friends, and it was the last story for you young people. They used to do newscasts. They were about 30 minutes. And the last couple of minutes would be, and finally tonight, our human interest story is blah, blah, blah. It was just like a one, for them, it was mm-hmm. like, eh, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, there was, as he was talking, the B-roll, Connie, was two things that I'll never forget to this, you know, if I lived to be 100 years old. One was an Ethiopian woman with a baby wrapped around her in this very classic kind of Pan-African style. You'll see that in many African cultures. And they were at the airport in Bringurian Airport. And I didn't know anything about that. And there was another one was an elder man, I think it was, kissing the ground. And I've seen that image many times. It just was emblazoned in my mind. I had no idea what I was looking at, right? I didn't know anything about the modern state of Israel. I knew nothing about Ethiopian Jews or Jews in the diaspora at all. Nothing. All I had was this you know, love for God, love for his word, right? That type of thing as a young person. But now I'm 17 years old. I'm watching these images and it's capturing me. Once again, it was only in retrospect when I realized what I was looking at as my Israel journey was more clear to me. I said, oh, okay, well, God, you were you were like taking a snapshot of it. And he said, here, hold this picture in your heart for a minute. I'm going to explain it to you later on. Oh, okay, yeah, whatever, right? So then years later, I go, oh, that's what I was looking at. I didn't realize it. So I, I tell people often, it resonated in my spirit. My brain had, you know what Paul would say, I would pray with my spirit, but also pray with my understanding. My spirit grabbed it. Like, yeah. boom, yes. My brain was completely, had no idea what I was looking at. Couldn't have explained it to you at all. Those types of things would recur when God would do something 
initially that made no sense to me. And then later on, I go, oh, okay, I get this. Okay. So when, when did you decide or when did you know that you were going to be a pastor, that that would be a part of your profession, um, if you will? Yeah. That was probably in my, in my early 20s. So again, I grew, grew up in church, uh, you know, love the word, that type of thing. And, and my, cause I said before, my mom was over the youth group. So in our Baptist church now, this happened in the South, obviously, when I, but I wasn't participating in, but in California, we had youth Sunday. Those of you know what I'm talking about. The youth did all the teaching in Sunday school. They did, I mean, so we would kind of run everything. So I would have my Sunday school class and me and my other friends and stuff like that. And I love teaching. I did, you know, I love teaching the word, right? So, but I had no thoughts of becoming a pastor. Let me emphasize that over and over again. I was a musician. If I was going to do anything, I was going to follow the path of an Andre Crouch, right? I had no desire to, to be a preacher or a pastor. Uh, and one of my mentors later on in life, um, who's based in the East Coast, I'm, he, I met him while still in California, while he was pra- traveling and teaching and preaching. Uh, but he became my mentor years later and um, uh, was a, you know, I mean, pastor, teacher, uh, had his PhD and everything and, and began to mentor me. And I would attend their the pastor's conferences and everything. Um, and not just my love of the word, but then my ministry and preaching and teaching. Some of counseling, I mean, counseling in the formal sense. I never went to, to, to school to study for becoming a psychologist or anything like that. But just ministering is God's word, um, young people, young pastors, those types of things. There was a pastoral call on me that was unearthed while that pastor had two mentors. My father and my mother raised me, but I had two men of God uh, who served as mentors for me in different areas and different periods of my life. And this was the latter one was in San Francisco and the other one was in the East Coast. And it was then that I uh, accepted what seemed to be the path for me, um, which was pastoring, right? Um, and I served as an associate pastor in a couple of ministries and at some point planted this a church. This is all in your late 20s? This was in, this goes from my early to mid 20s over this period of time. So if I'm doing the time clock thing, you're talking about now the 90s. Um, so Valerie and I are married in 88, um, and which we're in our early 20s. So you're getting to the early, yeah, to the early 90s to the, to the mid to late 90s over this seven, six, seven year period of time is this um, realization of this call and preparation for what eventually became becoming a, a senior pastor. Yes. So, so when you had the, the event with the Jewish classmate, I, I want to make clear to the audience, you didn't even have, I mean, you, you said you didn't, you weren't like an evangelist. You weren't, an, you weren't super into apologetics, like street preaching or anything like that. You had no, you still at that point didn't even think you'd ever become a, a preacher or a pastor. You knew that you were going to always be involved in the church, but that wasn't yes. your mindset. So then, and then also your kind of realization, like, oof, that this was kind of embarrassing. I, this guy knew more about my own church's history more than I did. That happened pretty quickly, right? This wasn't like years later. You, you went back and quickly realized, ooh, I kind of so look like was- a fool there. Right. You know what? So the, the me understanding what an idiot I was took a few years. So if I if I'm looking at time wise, so that happened, let's say, 
probably between 85, 86, that incident with my Israeli Jewish friend, right? Um, Are you still friends with him today? I we we haven't so I completely lost touch right so I okay. he he may be living in Israel today right he he may be somewhere in the United States or whatever but I know I haven't since that first semester of school I would see him from time to time in school but even at some point even when we graduated he wasn't still there he transferred and went to another school right okay. so um, but yeah so I haven't I haven't seen Ariel probably since 1986 right that's how okay. long it's been um, so. Um, so no, I definitely didn't come to realization then because I was thinking, you know, in my mind for those who might be asking, they'll go, yeah, well, he, he needs, he needs Jesus, right? That very, what I call the Christian arrogant thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but he just needs the Lord. He just needs the Lord. So in other words, I attributed him not speaking to me anymore as him just needing the Lord and not, not so much. I went about this the complete wrong way. I did not even consider, I didn't know any of these types of things. Right. So you're probably talking about a. Connie, let me see. So that was let's let's just let's just say for the sake of your comp for your question, that was 1986. It probably would not be for another six, seven years, maybe early 90s, that it dawns on me. And the only reason I can say that is because the journey of my life, right? That's what would fill that in, meaning that my first experience uh with Jewish friends in a religious context. So I I I'm living now, this is 1992, 92. I'm living in Virginia. My wife and I, we've moved from California. We're in Virginia. I'm serving as the music pastor for a church that's there. There's a Messianic Jewish congregation in the next county. That Messianic leader, that rabbi is friends with um, the pastor of the church where I'm ministering. Um, just so happens that their musician at the Messianic congregation is making Aliyah. Uh, mm. He's moving to Israel to be with his family. He's a keyboardist. Um, Can you and, explain what Aliyah is I'm to sorry, people? Aliyah, he's moving, moving to Israel, meaning he's a Jewish person who's now returning to his ancestral homeland to make it home, right? So he's living in Virginia at the time, but he's moving home. And they ask uh, the, the, the rabbi, the Messianic rabbi asks the pastor, does he know the musician? And I was newly there in the area. He goes, yeah, of course, church was on Sunday. They met on Saturday. Right. Um, and I tell people, <laughs> so, once again, how God does it. Um, I had no intention of playing. So I was a young father. Valerie and I had our first two children. Joshua and Sarah at that time were three and four or something like that. And I needed the money. That was it. It wasn't anything yeah, spiritual. That was it. So they said, we'll pay you a hundred bucks a, a Saturday to come and play. And I was like, you had me at a hundred bucks. Um, <laughs> like brother just needed to see it. So I was like, going, and so I went um, I, and I went to the, the, to their first meeting with they had the musicians had a meeting and rehearsal in the rabbi's house. And from the moment I walked through the door, he began to just talk to me about the sedur, about the, the whole what the service looked like. Sadur is a, it's like the it's like a like a service book with the prayers and the songs and stuff like that. He's talking to me about what this song is, and I'm saying to myself, "This is very nice. I don't need to know." I'm to myself. I say it aloud. I don't need to have all this information. Uh, just, I need the chord chart. Tell me and, where to. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> right? Where are the instruments? Yeah. Right. So my Christian arrogance is still at a very high level because it's very clear that God is talking to me about some things. I just don't realize it. So, so, so up until that point, though, playing for like, did you consider yourself a Baptist then all the way through? Were you? 
I did. Well, it's, well, it's funny because in high in college, I was a, a I joined my first non denominational church, right? And that was a huge thing for me because we were very Baptist, right? We we're Baptist, Baptist born, Baptist bred, Baptist died. That's an actual term. Everybody never heard that before. So like be, not being a Baptist anymore, like for those of you who are very Catholic and you've never been Catholic for right. the last 10 generations, that's what it was. You didn't, Baptists were the, we were the right ones, right? All these Presbyterians and all, we were right. We got it right, but else got it wrong, that whole thing. So I joined what was basically a, a Pentecostal style church, right? Uh, there where they're prophesying and speaking in tongues, the whole thing like that. And I've been told the whole time, these people are crazy. Mm-hmm. These people are wackadoo. So I walk in there and a college student, because my sister had preceded me going to San Francisco to college, right? So I walked in there and said, these people are strange, but there was something else happening in in the room that I didn't realize. And the pastor begins to mentor me later on. I'm on staff. I'm all of 19 years. My first staff position, I'm 19 years old. I'm, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm Everybody on that staff is old enough to be my parent or grandparent, right? And I'm over the music ministry at that point of this church that's several hundred. I mean, the, the, the music ministry alone has 80 plus people in it. I've never done anything like this, right? I've, this for me as a 19-year-old kid now coming out of Stockton, returning to San Francisco for where I was first as a baby was all very new for me. So there's all this stretching in my spirit, in my mind, that was happening. So walking into a messianic congregation now where there's they're singing in Hebrew, they're speaking Hebrew and, and translating things and these types of things. And, and not only that, within the messianic congregation, obviously, I began to also meet Jews in the Orthodox tradition as well, right? I would just mm-hmm. do, do different conversations and different things. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, hearing scriptures now, once again, what's resonating from the time I'm a little kid is teaching in the Torah uh, as a obviously a believer in Jesus, seeing the Jewishness of Jesus, why that's important to know. These things happened in the early 90s. And it's right around this time, Connie, that I begin to reflect on what was a few years ago at that point, right, in college, and me trying to convert my Jewish friend going, oh, I'm starting to understand now what was happening, right? What was going on? This was not about him just him him just, you know, shunning the gospel and it this was about me not understanding, right? Me not knowing what was going on, history, all of those things. So yes, so you're probably talking about a good six years or so between my incident with Ariel and and what I began to understand about my own journey. Okay. So yeah. that's that's when really the light bulb truly went off was your involvement in playing music for that, that church. Um, Let's kind of fast forward a little, well, I don't want to fast forward, but then when, I guess, when did you jump in with two feet? And you're like, it was a music thing. Here's the thing, Connie, a couple things happened, right? (laughs) So I'm in service at this, at this messianic synagogue, right? Again, so there's, um, like I said, the rabbi, he's Jewish from a long-standing Jewish family and, and, and in terms of being rabbis and things like that. And so um, I'm playing the song, Sing and Be Glad on the Heights of Zion. Right Now, mind you, this is now in my mid-20s, right? Am I now? Mid to late 20s? Yeah, mid-20s? No, early 20s still. I, I'm not, I don't math well, as my friend said. So I'm around 22, <laughs> right? I'm 22, right? Um, 22, 23. We're... I've been playing, I played the church about three and a half years before we moved out of Virginia, coming back to the West, right? 
Connie, we are playing the song that I had played many times now having been there for a while. And for the first time, like scales falling from my eyes, I realized the lyrics to the song, no joke. Once again, those are embarrassing stories. The Lord shall yet call unto Israel as the bridegroom calls to his bride. Although once forsaken and desolate, his Israel shall yet thrive. The, the chorus of the song is sing and be glad on the heights of Zion. Sing and dance and clap your hands. Sing and be glad on the heights of Zion. Sing and dance and clap your hands. So up until that point, whenever I had any type of word picture in my brain, I saw like a fiddle on the roof type of thing. No joke. I know people are like, oh, you're so silly. I'm telling you silly stories because I'm trying to tell you my journey, right? People mm -hmm. listen. Um, so I saw this kind of fiddle on the roof type of, you know, you know, Yiddish type of, you know, kind of. And then it hit me that we were singing about Mount Zion. And now my love for the Old Testament, I know what Mount Zion is, right? The mountain of the Jebusites and David, and he sends up his yeah. captain and he goes to the aqueduct, the whole thing. And it sits and I said, I've been playing this song for the last two plus years. And it is just now hitting me what the song is about. It was at that point that it began to happen, right? Um, for my wife as well, right? They invited us to their first, to their Passover Seder, right? And then on the plate and everything and stuff. And so I'm starting to see things, my faith from a Jewish perspective, at least a respect for the Jewish roots of it. And for us, in, in, to, in answering your question, both feet in, is at that point while we're in Virginia, a uh, longer story made short that we began to observe Shabbat. So Joshua and Sarah have been observing Shabbat since they were little bitty kids. Um, mm -hmm. We began to uh, sing songs of Zion in that way. That's why to this day we'll sing Hebrew songs. We'll sing, and I'm, to this day, I'm not fluent in Hebrew. I know a little bit of Hebrew, not, not as much as I should. I want to study formally. Um, we began to later on, not just so much the Torah portions, which is the, the parasha for those who know, uh, the, the different sections that are assigned by the sages. That was later on, but um, we began to do a Passover Seder in our house when our kids were very little. For us, at that point, it was a no turning back type of thing, right? Um, so yes, and and I know we'll get into it. It's still, the whole Israel advocacy thing hasn't happened. None of them about this political. There's no you know political Zionism, nothing like that, right? But this is very much a it became a a revelation for for both of us simultaneously. Um, I guess so. I'll tell this story, for example, from Valerie's perspective, and I'll make it short and sweet. And I'm not wanting to offend anyone listening. Uh, when we began to talk about Passover and the fact that the supper that Jesus had with his disciples before he was crucified wasn't just this, like, I'm going to die. Let's all kick it and, you know, have a, have a mm -hmm. meal together. It was literally the Passover, right? There was right. actually a theme happening there, which we had never considered before. So for Christians, it's, that's Easter for us, right? But unless you're brought up in that type of context it, in most traditional churches, now it's different now. They talk about it, but there's no talk about You saw the word Passover in the text, but there wasn't an explanation as to this was something that they, that the Jewish people have been doing for millennia at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that his crucifixion was now during this time, right? This was, and the significance of that actually happening, right? So for my wife, for her, what was happening was that she was struggling. Again, I, I say this again, not want to be offensive, but just trying to be as, as, as candid as I can. 
she and I both began to kind of step away from Easter because at that time it was a conflict for us. Again, this was not a preaching thing. We weren't talking to people. You better blah, 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 none of that kind of stuff. So for Valerie became when it was time for Easter. Remember, I'm playing at this Messianic congregation on Saturday. I'm at this regular church on Sunday, right? So these things are happening in real time. This became a theme as well. And so Sarah and Joshua were still little kids and they did little kid things, right? Mommy, why do we get new clothes at Easter? She said, oh, because it represents the new life in Jesus. Because she's saying, mommy, why do we eat Easter eggs? Oh, it's because it represents the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? You got the shell, you got the egg, you got the yolk. Now she's talking. She has no idea whether these things are true. She's just saying stuff to them, right? They're asking questions. She's saying what she was told. And they said, okay, mommy, walked away. And then she felt terrible because she said, I feel like I just lied to my kids because I don't know the answer to those questions. I just said what was said to me. And she said, this is not okay with me. That for her as the mother became the, okay, if we're going to do a faith tradition, I want to be able to explain to them why something other than my mama and her mama, I, that right. for her, that became that. That wasn't the connection for me with the children immediately. That was for her as the mom, right? Mm-hmm. Mine was more theological. Mine was also music, right? I'm, I'm singing lyrics. I'm looking at songs and those types of things. But what God did, we converged. So we're having these very um, life-altering conversations in real time from different perspectives. And that's what that was in the early 1990s and when that started for us. So I just want to be clear to people. One, they might be kind of confused. They'd be like, wait, you weren't becoming Jewish, right? You were still, you still believed everything you always believed about Jesus, right? You were still a Christian. You were celebrating, you you were doing Passover dinner. Why does, why can't you kind of do both, I guess? Is that just how you're celebrating? You just feel like Passover dinner or just celebrating Passover. I shouldn't say dinner, just Passover in general is how you celebrate his him rising. Or why wouldn't you do that and acknowledge Passover and then also be like, and then here's the celebration that's literally about him rising. So there's, there's the context first, why it happened yeah. when it happened, Passover, and then the actual event. So the context, uh, oh, that's, there's, there's two two different contexts uh, that serve as the answers to your question. Number one is the very personal, deep, deeply personal one. So those who've been listening up to this point, you know that when I began to talk about my own personal faith journey as a child, it was just that very personal, going into my closet, closing the door, all those types of things. There was nothing, nobody was doing this to me, right? Nobody was saying, you better go in your closet. I mean, I read what right. Jesus said, but I took it literally, right? And nobody said, pray this many times a day. Nobody said, none of these types of things that happened to me. It was all very personal thing. Um, the Israel part of it as it unfolded too. No one was saying those things to me. So that's the first answer was that for me, and then for Valerie in a different way, the things that we began to see uh, deeply resonated with us personally, and it became something that we could whether we were doing or no longer doing something was very personal. And again, I stress that person because this was in our house. This was not, I'm not preaching at this point, right? I'm not a pastor. None of these types of things. I'm in my early 20s still or so. And this is very just in our home that we felt that this was a shift for us. We didn't know where all it was going. We didn't know what was going to unfold. But for us, it was very much a, we're not going to do this anymore. Uh, we're going to do this now. One of the many reasons why I'm grateful for that was because it wasn't me explaining 
uh, or, or teaching or preaching or walking a congregation through any of these things. This was simply just my wife and me and our two little kids, right? Uh, and so this was kind of like an incubator of it because it was this we would just do this together. We would do Shabbat together. And I mean, like literally like, OK, we're not going to work. We're going to work six days. And then on this day, we're not going to work. We're going to worship together. We're going to read the word together, that type of thing that started like 30 something years ago now. And that was just the case. The second part to the answer to your question, though, was about why couldn't Christians. It, 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 it's connected to the first. We would teach later on. Here's what the scriptures is. Here, here's what this is. Here's what this is connected to. And so one of the things we have to let people know is that everyone's not going to come to it or even uh, process it the same. They're going to look at it. They're going to see, okay, this is cool. Boom. And then we're going to be for some who are going to see something in the text or in the tradition that they hadn't seen before. And for them, it will be a point where they will stop doing this and do this, right? We told, as and as we would teach it then, getting older, it is a very personal and intimate thing, right? So, and we have over the decades seen that. We have seen Christians um, become aware of something, a Feast of Tabernacles celebration, a Sabbath uh, uh, observance, anything, a Passover, that, and see it in a context in the New Testament, right? And have a myriad of responses. Some like, huh, that's very interesting. Well, what you just said, for example, okay, I can do this, I can do that, right? Or, yeah, I did that, that was cool, and that's gonna be, that's not for me type of thing. And others go, wait a minute, er, stop everything. Wait a minute, say that part again. And mm -hmm. then for them, I'm going to do this. And we found that it's in that sense, almost inexplicable. Why did Joe and Lisa Ramirez stop celebrating Easter and only do Passover as well as the rest in their context of a Christian, right? They're still doing this. And why did, you know, Josh and Lisa, you know, Johnson see the exact same thing and say, eh, that's cool and move on. They both love God. They both, they, their salvation is intact, all the type of things. Right. Wow. Why did one respond? And over decades, I can tell you that I haven't gotten smart enough to be able to explain to you <laughs> the answer to that question. People will come in. So when we would do Seder, this, so it became controversial. So within the Jewish community, there are, it's a, there, there is a, um, and I know this from having my friends, my relationships, and, and then just theologically, in much of the Jewish community, anyone who's not Jewish observing anything to do with Passover is basically just an abomination, right? In other words, this is the liberation celebration of the Jewish people, period. This is not about Jesus. This is not about any lamb. You people are a sugar, right? That's it. And then I have other Jewish friends who are like, oh, okay, that's what you do and you get, that's fine, right? So I've seen the, the spectrum, respect all of them, right? Because I've had these conversations, very, very deep conversations, right? And I get it. I want you to get it. So in our Seder that we would do, and I, so, I, we, I, so I officially became a senior pastor in 2004, which we'll cover that. And, thing. and we plant the Congregation of Zion, a, a Messianic or Hebrew roots congregation in Stockton, still there now, although I live in North Carolina, the pastors are still there, ministry and everything. And we would have our Seder every year. Um, it would grow in number and everything. By the, before, right before COVID, there was like, like nearly 300 people at our Seder. We had to rent a place downtown to have it with all the tables and chairs and everything. And some of my Jewish friends 
would come. Not Jewish believers in Jesus, right? They would come because mm -hmm. there was so much, there was music, there was celebration, and there was always a solidarity theme in that Seder. Something that was expressed in that Seder in the beginning that would say why we will pray for and stand with Israel and the Jewish people. Some of my Jewish friends began to come because they knew they were around Christians. They were around people that loved them. And, mm -hmm. and as you and I both know, the anti-Semitism that's through the roof, they just wanted to be there in the midst of the, of the celebration and that, and I mean, just the, I wasn't at the Seder there in California. I was here. I, I, I reported a few of our Jewish friends joined again. That, that continues to happen. Right. Uh, and that was a testimony thing. We would just, it was like a, you know, we were loving, we, we love you. We stand with you. Um, but Connie, I found that in doing that, um, this was what was always interesting to me. Every year at the Seder, there'd be, uh, there'd be new people, Christians now, who had never experienced one before, mm -hmm. Orthodox, Messianic, whatever. There was always a percentage of those people who for them, that was the turning point. Most of them came and returned to their their regularly scheduled program. I'm not saying the negative way. They would do, okay, this was cool. That's a nice experience, right? But there was always, and I say percentage, maybe a 10%. Like if there was 10 people there, one of them would be mm -hmm. like, oh, wait a minute, stop everything. Wait a minute. I've seen that. And because we experienced that in our own way, we knew where they were in that sense, right? We got it, right? So for the people, who, this was cool, right? This is really nice. This is neat. And I got this experience. Uh, uh, different from the other people who are like going, okay, no, this is something, this is a different shift. This is, this means something else to me. We got it that that would be the different responses, but again, couldn't explain to you what made somebody respond one way and not one way the other. Obviously I was from the, the, the latter group. I was like, okay, this is a shift for me. So it's, it's not even necessarily that you think of an approach to Christ's resurrection is absolutely wrong or right you you mean you I, I know that you think that or i think you believe that christians should know more about passover they should understand the context of the words that the words they're reading about you know perhaps the, the biggest event in history ever you know that christians center their you, you can't have christianity unless jesus rises right from the dead yes, it, it doesn't work the circle is not closed unless that happens so yes, obviously it's extremely important to all christians Yes. But I guess would you would you have that debate with the Christians? Like, no, I I read, I understand Passover. Like, I think, you know, I I've I've educated myself. I understand the context. I understand why this all took place during the season. But we still do Easter in kind of the traditional way that Christians do it. Or would you say I think you should think about that and you should? This is why I do it my way, and I kind of think it's the correct way. Or is so, it kind of like? Do you baptize babies or do you not? And it's not a salvation issue. See you in heaven. You know, yes. I, I, I was smiling, chuckling because yes. Yeah, so no. So to answer your question, let me do this as direct as I can. No, I don't. I, I never have debates around those things outside of this context. I'll tell you what I mean by that. And I, cause I learned early. I remember for those who are following this journey, if you're listening to this long, God bless you. Right. Um, if you follow this journey, much of what informed my walk was doing really dumb stuff, like trying to convert a Jewish person in the middle of class, right? So that, the reason why I tell those stories the same way that I teach my children, although they're grown now, is that for parents, and here's me, shout out to you, they see your flaws anyway. You can act like you want to, you can do whatever like that. The older they get, they get it, right? So the more candid you are with them, 
the easier it's going to be to give them instruction. You try to do that whole thing, like you got it all together, and they already know you got it all together. They're not going to really listen to what you're saying because they know you're blowing smoke, right? Because they know they don't need mommy and daddy to be perfect in order for them to love mommy and daddy and get advice from them. Now, I'm not talking about like those three year olds. I'm talking about they're older. They're 13, they're 15. Mm-hmm. They get it. They, they By now, they figured out that you make mistakes more than you probably even realize it. But as you're open about, hey, daddy blew that, but boom, this is what we're going to do. They'll learn. Why do I say that? I say that because I learned early on, I don't have those debates because I don't go to Christians and say, you shouldn't be blah, 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 blah. The only time <laughs> I've had debates like that is when the inverse happened. The Christian coming to me, Christ set us free from the law. There's no reason why Sabbath is over. Passover is that. So, okay, so I didn't tell you not to do X, Y, and Z. But now, mm-hmm. since we're under there, let's have the conversation. Da, 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 da. So for me, this early on, right? So I never have, and even in the context of debate, if I see it's getting contentious, I just shut it down, right? Because I say, I've been saying this to our congregation for years, these are not issues of salvation. This is not, I'm, you're going to do right. this and I'm going to do this and we're going to get more saved and get a better condo in heaven. None of that is the case, <laughs> right? That's not how this works, right? What this is, knowledge, understanding and whatever your journey is. And so for me, again, not that theology is personal. That is more, that that's a definite thing. I know we probably have to walk into that a little bit more meaning Something's not theologically true because I feel it deep in my heart. They, the lots of heresies have commit, have been committed because of that, right? So there's yeah. a different thing of something that's in my heart, right? And something that's just, you know, true. Here's what the word, like you said, a Christian, if you don't believe that he died and rose again, then you can call yourself whatever. You're not a Christian, right? You can slap mm-hmm. whatever label on that. Okay, so that's the case. So for me, the, the, um, the, Having that as a conviction, like, oh, here's what I'm going to do. And this is how I was able to hopefully over a period of time effectively minister to the people in the congregation. That God gives everyone a journey. There, the, the Bible uses the word path, and I don't remember that word in the Hebrew yet, so many times to, to signify journey or life, right? Um, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, right? Um, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. It's talking about your life, right? Even Moses, one of the only Psalms attributed to Moses is Psalm 90. Uh, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom, right? This is all about what my life's journey is supposed to be. I found that it is true. It is both theologically true, but then it is also very much of of um, of a personal thing for people that God does things in someone's heart for reasons that may not make sense to them. For me, and immersing more and more in the Hebrew roots of my faith in Jesus had so much to do with what my journey became later on as a Christian Zionist. Someone who had the theological discussion, have the geopolitical discussion, have the black church discussion. When I say that, not in some sort of, you know, I'm the man type of thing, but have, having the having to deal with these different issues in the very deep way in different areas of my life, in different times of my life, and then to see how it unfolds, I said, okay, this makes sense now. So having the conversation with pastors, with lay members, with other, what, so being able to explain why this, why that, how this is connected to these types of things. Connie, I've said it often to my Christian friends and colleagues. I've learned more about my faith in Jesus from being with my Jewish friends and in the text than I 
ever did coming up in church. And that is not a disparaging thing. I know people are going to say, oh my God, how did I No, I'm dead serious because I would see something explained in a way and I go, oh, wow. So this, and this is this, and this is what I'll even getting examples because I'd be too long. So I go on, wow, one of my, um, my, um, my, my daughter-in-law, she asked me one time, she said, dad, um, were you ever concerned that the more you were immersed in the Jewish part, you would you would stop believing in Jesus. I kind of chuckled. I said, you know, what's funny to me, Olga, is that the more I've learned about the Jewish roots of my faith, the stronger my faith in Jesus mm -hmm. has been, right? It's mm -hmm. been the exact opposite, right? So again, but that was my journey, right? There were things yeah. that happened that didn't make sense at the time that as things unfolded, I went, oh, so that very embarrassing thing with my friend there and, and me trying to convert him informed what was going to become my relationship with my Jewish brothers and sisters, completely respecting their faith, knowing that they don't believe as I believe, right? But not needing to change that. And at the same time, being open to sharing. I have shared Jesus with Jewish friends who've come to me and asked me, Dumisani, I want to know, a couple of friends said to me, Dumisani, you love Israel and you know, you celebrate the feasts that and the other one of my friends said, you know, more, you're more Jewish than some of the Jewish people. Yeah. And yeah. I got a chuckle. He said, you know, he asked me, he was a setup. He said, why do you do the Jesus thing? Talk about open door. So, I, so I'm talking like, to him about why I believe he's the Messiah, right? That's exactly mm -hmm. what that was. So I, I've had those conversations again, not me. Hey, let me, you, yeah, you, you know, Jesus, yeah. you know, that type of thing. It was, and so for me, these are genuine conversa con uh, 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 relationships with Jewish friends that I love very deeply, right? For a long period of time, right? And one of the reasons why they respect me is because they know I've never tried to convert them. I've never tried to, hey, you know what? That's dumb. You, Jesus is the Messiah. Why don't you? N none of that. And when we have discussed Jesus or the gospel, it's been them asking me something and me simply answering that question as honestly and forthrightly as I can. And, and again, would I have experienced that had God not done it that way? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I was hard-headed enough for him to kind of take me through that long part of the journey to actually understand how to have those conversations and that those relationships with my Jewish friends uh, and, and not making our friendship contingent upon whether or not they convert, right? Whether whether or not we can still work together and love each other. And I've had rabbis pray for me and bless my family and bless my yeah. home. And, and that's been a blessing to my life, Connie. I would never want to change that, right? And, and again, we've had conversations about Jesus and about him my belief that he's the Messiah and he's going to, Rabbi Riskin, mm -hmm. Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, not, I, mean, I know him, we're not close personal friends, blessed, wonderful man. I'd heard about his, he would, um, he'd been doing Christian Jewish things for a long time. I remember that, never forget, he'll tell the story. Um, and he was saying, he was, he would say that um, he was whittling down, he's being halfway joking. He said, you know what, you, we, you guys believe he's the Messiah is Jesus? We don't. He said, so when Messiah comes, we'll ask him, is this your first time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick, we have got to know. Relationships have been very yeah. important to me, but again, it would not have happened had maybe God not taken me the route that He had to take me. You know I mean? Okay, okay, that all makes a lot of sense. And I hope I answered your question somewhere in there. I'm you sorry. did, you did. It was all, it was great. We've talked for over an hour now about the your foundation, which is just fascinating to me, and I just think it's very important for people to it's see true. like how long it takes to yes, change, you know, for people to change. Um, and that that's okay. You can take your time and, you know, you should, you don't, you don't need to rush. Like you just yeah. said, a lot of these things aren't actually salvation issues. So it's not like you gotta be like, I gotta figure this out right now or else right. if he comes, I'm doomed, you know, like that's not the case. And like yes, God knows your heart, right? And he knows that you're trying to pursue the truth, but let's get into your actual 
activism now. So we know that your theological perspective has shifted in a huge way. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you, you've, you weren't doing this yet, but eventually you would go on to found a church that follows this theological shift. But let's get into more of your like political activism, which didn't start with Ipsy, started with a different organization. If you want to talk about your involvement there. Sure. So well, chronologically, Ipsy was first. So so let me let me do this way. So it was around 2012 that um, 2011 or 12, somewhere around in there, I began to speak out on behalf of the Jewish state of Israel. Now, at this point, I was not a part of an organization. What happened for me? This was from the pulpit, or this was you writing uh, articles for somebody, was, or both. I was pastoring by then, so I would definitely do it from the pulpit, right? Um, but also in the other parts of the public square. So, what happened was when you combine these different things I'm talking about, a great pride about the community that I came from, from Little Rock, Arkansas, the whole black excellence, all that kind of stuff, right? That told you about my mom has shared with me and. And, and what we experienced, everything, and it was very, they were very proud to be Black American, and then all the faith traditions and all those type of things. Um, I had um, my understanding and uh, and a realization, I should say, of the modern state of Israel was around 2011 or so when I began to attend a few Christians United for Israel events locally. Mm. And I did that as okay. a musician, right? Um, I heard some about Israel and everything, but I never really had delved in further. Uh, my friend at the time who lived in Sacramento is a musician. He had a band and the band would sometimes play at what was called the Night to Honor Israel, something that Kufi would present. And we did it in Sacramento. We did it in Nevada. We did we were doing different places. Right. And it was in these events that sometimes the speakers would be somebody who was Israeli. They may talk about some charitable organization that was going on, the Ethiopian Israeli community, those types of things. So I'm I'm. So the the modern state of Israel is now coming on my radar, right? So I started to do some uh, reading and researching and everything and finding out and everything. And this started with my these Kufi events, right? So I also began to understand the principles around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? Uh, the claims of the dispossession of the Arabs, understanding who the Mizrahi Jews are, these types of things. I'm starting now to understand what this the new, the, the modern Jewish state is the political things around it, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I come to understand is that Israel's detractors would often attack it as a Jim Crow state, as an apartheid state. Well, that pissed me off, right? So now am I learning certain things, right? But my family came out of Jim Crow, right? So this becomes right. personal to me, right? So I'm like going, okay, so not only are you not being honest about the conflict, but you're actually going into my history, right? And you're applying these things in a, a very fraudulent way, right? So I get angry. So I'm speaking out about it, right? And I get my parents who are no longer here, especially my mom. She, she, she had a very big mouth. My mom was, she's that type of person who would give you your opinion whether you liked, whether you asked for it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was very vocal and didn't like mince words, right? She was like, boom. And I got that from her. On the one hand, I'm more soft-spoken like my dad. But on the other hand, once you kind of go there, then... Yeah, we're about to go there, right? So, <laughs> um, at some point um, in Sacramento, which is the capital, there is a measure on the city council to make um, Ashkelon a sister city. And by now, I'm a little vocal and everything, and I've kind of I'm 
been saying some things publicly. And so some of my friends there, Kufi friends there, asked me to be one of the speakers because they had people come and speak for and against the measure, right? So I go there, uh, packed city council room on one side of, you know, anti-Israel, the other side, almost like an event on a college campus. Uh, Sacramento has a pretty large Arab-Palestinian population. Uh, So many of them obviously were against it, right? And so um, I came and I spoke, we had two minutes and everything. And um, the, the, the intensity in the room uh, the animosity, all those types of things. That was my first anti-Israel event, right? Yeah. Uh, that I spoke. Um, other people were watching it on simulcast and everything like that. Uh, and from then I started to get asked to come and speak and, and share and everything, right? Because here's this black man. And this is just you as kind of a guy. You're, you're right. just, people noticed you. You kind of went viral in a sense. Yes, and, that kind of thing. Yeah. But before the days, I mean, it, Facebook existed, but you know, not social media like we know it today, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, some people had seen it and everything, and so yes. Um, so then, in two thousand and twelve, that must have been two thousand eleven. So, two thousand and twelve, I take my first trip ever to Israel as part of Kufi's African American Pastors Tour. Mm-hmm. Had okay. never been to the Holy Land before, and it was at the Western Wall in December, Hanukkah, two thousand and twelve where these different strains of my life converged. Mm-hmm. My love for Africa, which we haven't even discussed, my love for Israel, uh, my faith, my deep abiding faith, all these things converged. And it was there at the Western Wall that I had a strong sense that I needed to return to the States and do this advocacy, do this, what I would call Africa, Israel, Black Jewish solidarity. It was there that Ipsy was probably born in my mind, right? But you still weren't okay. So you went with Christians United for Israel, but you were just went as a part of a program. You actually weren't employed by them. No, ma'am, I was not okay. on staff. I had friends who were on staff, right, and, and and I'd done some of the events, right, as a musician and everything. But I was not a part okay. of staff at all. I was just coming along for the ride, right. And these okay. other black pastors that were there had an amazing time. Uh, with our, everybody said, "We got to talk about that in my book as well." Zionism in the Black Church. And when I got back home, Connie, I began to do more and more research and found out among many other things about um, this black American Zionist organization that was started in 1975 uh, called BASIC, Black Americans to Support Israel Committee. Dr. King's friends and family members were all members of this congreg- of, of this of this organization. And it was a relief to me because understanding what I knew about black history, understanding what I under- did about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, how Israel's enemies were using anything black, the apartheid struggle of South Africa, right? The Jim Crow South, they were using mm-hmm. anything to slander Israel, right? As I was doing that, I, I got, like I said, I got offended, I got, you know, pissed off and had never heard of BASIC. It was uh, author Gil Troy of the book Boynihan's Moment um, and other uh, articles someone had sent to me uh, and explaining to me. And I, I felt it was a piece of my personal history. I was personally gratified to know that there was a black American response to the slandering of Israel and the pilfering of our heritage. I, I was, I was like, I was like a relief. I was like, okay. So I was wondering what was the black community saying while Yasser Arafat was, you know, partnering with Arab nations that were enslaving black people, right? While calling Israel, you know, a discriminatory, I was like, well, my yeah. God, where were the people of conscience? Well, sure enough, Bayard Rustin, A. Philip Randolph, uh, the Coretta Scott King, Daddy King, all these all these people were part 
of this organization. I was like, whew, God, that's good, man. Because what was happening, of course, history doesn't teach you that, right? You're not going to learn right. that in a book. You're not going to learn that on Google. And that became, for me, very personal, right? So the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel was born out of an understanding that I needed to kind of take up that baton. I tell people all the time, not that we in any way think I'm not Dr. King's family, I'm not Bayard Russell, Avery, none of those types of things. We're having type of delusions of grandeur. But the principle of Black voices have to be the ones articulating this type of solidarity, that was very, very important to me. And so as you're you're basically coming up with the idea for, for Ipsy, um, actually let's is ipsy is your target audience i mean i i i know that you will take any ally right like anybody who's willing to come alongside you and fight for the things that you're fighting for you're not going to tell somebody no just because they're white or just because they're not a christian or whatever but generally speaking who is your target audience just black people or just black christians or you know do you do you tend to make a secular case? Do you do you find yourself making a secular case, or do you believe you can't really make a secular case, a strong secular case for right. Zionism and and the pro-Israel position? How would you kind of break down? I guess let's start at the top with like the secular audience, and then we'll go down from there. Okay, I think it's easier to do maybe like you're saying the target audience for us would be the black church with black Christians, especially black Christian leaders, pastors, bishops, that type of thing. But definitely not exclusion uh, exclusionary. So Christians, whether they're black Christians, whether they're not Christians, um, whatever their faith is, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Muslim, that type of mm -hmm. thing, right? But particularly members of the black community, especially leaders in the black community. But then it just continues to open from there, like whether whatever groups that we're working with. Um, that's why when I go to speak, I, I speak at synagogues, I speak at churches you know, mm -hmm. colleges, those types of things. And that's what Ipsy does. Uh, whether we are strategizing with our Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, whether we are uh, giving messages both historically and, and geopolitically what's happening right now with black leaders, right? So the first and foremost, our focus is uh, black church leaders, which is why Ipsy will be launching Ipsy Pastors a little bit later on in the spring, right? Along with Ipsy Ambassadors that has begun now. Um, so... Um, when it comes to the secular versus sacred, yes, there is the religious case that we make that's a biblical thing. But that's always the foundation for what is, I always use that term geopolitical, something that's not, that in terms of Israel, its neighborhood, and its relationship, both obviously in, with other African nations, and then by extension, what I'm talking about off in terms of the Black Jewish synergy here. When we consider both themes, here's the biblical part. Bless those who bless you. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The Queen of Sheba traveling thousands of miles to visit Solomon in Jerusalem and expressing solidarity with Israel and Jewish people. All those things that are biblical themes, right? Even the culture of the diaspora, Zephaniah 310, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my daughters, my supplicants, I'll bring, I'll, I'll, shall bring my offering, right? So all of these things that are biblical, the diaspora, all of those things, they are to me eternally connected all of these other things. For example, mm -hmm. if we're talking now about Israel in the secular sense, the only viable democracy in the Middle East, Israel's enemies hate when you say that, but you know what? Let that burn. Yeah, I'm sorry. It is a liberal 
democracy is no more perfect than any other place. But you have people who live in that tiny nation of some like 9 million people from some hundred different nations, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Christian, whether they're Jews, whether they're Muslim, right? And they, it is a modern day miracle, not just the diaspora Jews returning to the land, but the, as you know, leader in technology in every kind of field, right? In terms right. of computers, in terms of processors and all those other types of things, right? How does this little bitty nation continue to punch above its way? I think it's like the seventh largest economy in the world, seventh, eighth, ninth. My God, are you kidding me? Nine million people and the seventh, the eighth, ninth largest economy in the world. This is an amazing thing. And what has been its theme from the beginning, from the days of Theodor Herzl, the one of the founding fathers of modern Zionism, who never lived to see the rebirth of the state. What did he say? When I've seen the redemption of the Jewish people, I want to assist in the redemption of the Africans. Why has that consistently been such a theme with the state of Israel? The first foreign minister, Golda Meir, who goes on to become the only female prime minister of Israel. She was called by the president of Tanzania, Julius Nairi, called her the mother of Africa. Why did they have such an extensive uh, program and an extensive outreach to the African nations who, like them, had been colonized for a long period of time and now were emerging on the scene? Israel is the greatest regional friend and partner to Africa there uh, it, it, hands down. Now, again, for the cynics who say, oh, there have been these problems and that problems, and I can list up the problems. Yes, you don't have a relationship of whether you want to count it as 3,000 years from Queen of Sheba or 75 years tomorrow, today, because you don't have a relationship that long and not have some problems. There have been problems that are there, but they have been far outweighed by the good things that have happened, right? And so this is a, another strategic reality. Some of Israel's most bitter enemies who will disparage it with all kinds of racist epithets and everything, will say nothing about the million slaves in Libya. We'll say nothing about the slaves in Mauritania or in Sudan. They will say nothing about the, 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 the organ harvesting that Hamas itself was involved in in the Sinai. They will say nothing about the atrocities against Black people in the very same region, but will then turn and pivot to about how racist Israel is. Those people are not to be taken seriously, right? And this is what's also happening as well, Connie. Africa is an overwhelmingly Christian nation, a Christian continent. And according to Gallup or Pew, by 2050, most of the world's Christians will be in Africa. Mm -hmm. That same poll says that the most ardent, fervent Christians, not just the number, but in terms of their faith are in Africa. And there are Christians who believe the Bible, who love Israel, who pray for Israel. And that is what fuels their activism, if you will. Mm -hmm. The overwhelming majority of those people are going to be in Africa. There is a shift that's happening right now as we speak. right? And this is nothing that makes our job so immediate because we believe that this... And, and you know this, it's amazing. Here you have Africa exploding the number and everything. More babies are being had in Africa than anywhere else. All these things are happening. While other civilizations are literally dying, not even replacing yeah. themselves in terms of yeah. number, there are some African nations that are still having four, five, six children, right? So this is still happening. And then it's overwhelmingly Christian. This is happening all on its own. Or to say, maybe it's a God thing that's actually happening here. But what's also happening, who also is on Africa's radar? Or, or I should say, who also has Africa on their radar? China, Russia. Mm -hmm. Right. So Iran, Iran, the number one state sponsor of terrorism, and they have terror cells all over Africa. So these things, we're in a moment in time right now. And who just happens to be number one, the best in counterterrorism? The Jewish state of Israel. Right. 
kind of because they have to be, right? Because like right. we don't, I mean, we have to always know what's going on, their technology, their ability, and what do they do? They freely share it with African nations, right? They're like, help you, we're going to help you coordinate, we'll help you fight against these threats. The, that's the geopolitical reality. So after we've done with the biblical part, now let's deal with this practical part right here. We'll talk about how Israel and its agriculture and its and its and its water irrigation and its and its science and its technology and how it, it it's it has a nephrology unit that's actually there in the Nairobi hospital in Kenya. They built it in 2014. It's a pediatric oncology ward built by Israel to help there the children in Kenya and Africa in Kenya and throughout the region in terms of their kidney issues, right? The save a child's heart that's based there in Israel, which we're all going to see here pretty soon, that actually operates on children from all over the world, particularly developing parts of the world. And I can go on and on and on and on. We're talking about a strategic regional partner that no one else can parallel. And I tell my Jewish friends to be imperialist. You are the worst imperialist I've ever met in my life, right? Because they go, oh, Israel's only do that to take care, to take control over us. Okay, so since 1948, we should have Israeli flags planted everywhere. Israel should own virtually everything in Africa. Why? They don't. China does, right? China mm -hmm. owns ports. China owns roads. Yep. China builds roads in African nations just so they can get their goods to the airport and fly them to China. They don't care about that nation, right? right. Israel is supposed to be the evil one doing that. They're not doing that, right? They're actually helping build uh, sustainable lives, right? Helping the agriculture. This has been the case since Israel's rebirth, right? So if you're going to make the biblical case or the geopolitical case, we'll have the discussion with you. I challenge someone, tell me another nation that has done more for the continent of Africa than Israel, and we can have that discussion. Is Ipsy hoping to change hearts and minds, which then will drive some policy changes? Or are you trying to change policy? Or if someone's like, okay, but what is actually your your mission here? You, you do like Israel apologetics and try to try to just make people even have Israel and Zionism and the relationship between Israel and Africa on their radar. When would you close shop as Ibsi? Our work here is done in, in a dream scenario, right? For us, it's funny how you asked that. We have no intention of Ipsy in its mandate where it comes to ab the advocacy part going on indefinitely, meaning we are believing real markers that will tell us that we can shift. Meaning one of the things that we understand in our advocacy today is to, to dispel the lies, the disinformation, the propaganda that has so poisoned the well in so many different areas, whether theologically, right? Obviously, in terms of what's going on at college campuses. When I mean by that, I'm not meaning we're going to go and change what's going on in Duke. And, 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 and I'm saying to be able to help, um, particularly first and foremost in the Black community, give historically accurate information about the Jewish state of Israel, Africa's relationship with Israel, why that's so important to Black Americans, not to mention what we haven't even touched on it in terms of the Black Jewish synergy, Booker T. Washington, Julius Rosenwald. Uh, Dr. King, Joshua Heschel, why that synergy has been so crucial and so important, not just for both communities, but for the world. But for us, we see in the future a growing, prosperous, thriving Africa, an African diaspora who will very much, the way the Queen of Sheba did, have a close uh, the relationship with Israel but that will be so beneficial to so many people, right? So basically when um, the continent of Africa is thriving, the world is thriving. Is, basically. 
yeah. the, the same way that the world will take. I mean, my God, Connie, as you know, cobalt, gold, silver, zinc, copper, everything, everything is in abundance there, right? Uh, but it remains poor for lots of different reasons. You and I know that, whether it's internal strife, whether it's uh, bad governance, right? Or whether it's the manipulation of other governments and other very, very powerful entities making sure that Connie, who has now risen as the premier of insert African nation, who decides that she wants to use these resources for her people and she gets offed, maybe, you know, some, she gets helped and escorted out the door by these other powerful entities who don't want Connie to actually sell those wares on the full market value on the because they're gonna have to pay more they would they would rather have connie be dishonest have her be inept so that they can have access to her oil to her whatever right so that they can continue to reap those benefits we believe that those days are going to be approaching and it may take a minute but they're coming right and for us there is a role that black americans are to play in that as we have learned from our friend pastor shagan and uh, Ansel Brown, who's a professor uh, uh, there in North Carolina Central University, that we believe that the Black American is the Joseph to the brothers that are Africa. That what we are going to see in terms of these African nations thriving will very much be facilitated by Black Americans who feel, once again, that personal journey, right? Well, I'm Black American. I don't care about Rwanda. Okay, that's you. That's fine. I get that. I can only get that. But somebody listen to this, their hearts will just break because it is resonating with you for reasons that you maybe can't even understand right now. And I would submit to you that those reasons may have something to do with Africa's thriving. And this, what I call this, there is a pan-Africanism slash Zionism that I've been seeing emerge more and more, especially over the last couple of years, leaders reaching out to us, both in the United States and in Africa, with this almost Jerusalem alarm clock that just went off in their head, like, wait, 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 wait. I feel to do this connection. I've started this venture. We are doing this and we're going to Israel to do blah, blah, blah. We're going to Africa to, to, to meet with these other pastors. And we're going to talk about the importance of Israel. Just the other day, I have a meeting with somebody in a couple of days, a, a resuming meeting where they're going to Egypt and they're going to other parts of Africa. Then they're going to Israel. And there's this vision that they have to help connect. But they don't even understand exactly why I've been seeing this for the last couple of years, right? This is very much a mm-hmm. God moment. So yes, for us, we believe that we're going to have the opportunity, and then maybe not in my lifetime, maybe my grandsons, right, will turn and pivot. Ipsy's original mandate, where we are strengthening the tie between the you know Black and Jewish and African Israel, will be outdated because there won't be a need for that anymore. There'll be just now a building of mm. amazing opportunities and changing lives in a way that people would have thought was completely impossible. Just like those who know anything about the Middle East, that we all thought that something like the Abraham Accords was a pipe dream. Are you kidding me? Right, Israel sitting right. down with the UAE, possibly Saudi Arabia, but definitely Morocco, Sudan. You would have told somebody that a couple of years ago, they told you were smoking and they want to mm-hmm. know how where you bought it from, right? But yeah. it's a reality right now. It's a reality. After the first year of the Abraham Accords, the UAE and Israel did over a billion dollars worth of commerce. What? Are you, this is these are Arab nations that were hostile to Israel at the very least, cold to Israel. The region is changing, and Africa has been a friend for a long time. It's just that that friendship needs to go to another level. They need to vote against these anti-Israel measures in the United Nations. These things need to happen, and there are African leaders having this conversation right now. They're enjoining Black Americans to have the conversation with them. So. 
basically the the secular case and i know actually you like me kind of have libertarian tendencies when it comes to your political views generally speaking about all things but you know libertarians tend to be kind of isolationist and that's the case many people make where they're like i don't hate israel i don't want people killing each other but i think the united states should kind of mind our own business whether and and i know that that's not consistent right like people make the case that Many people are not consistent. Like, we should leave Israel alone, but they don't have a problem with us being involved in other countries doing much more nefarious stuff. All that aside, basically, there's a self-interest case that actually a lot of us are coming to realize. Many of us who, um, you know, of course, I was in fourth grade when 9-11 happened. So I, um, you know, experienced, I lived through some wars, right? But it wasn't the same type of war And because in the Middle East, of course, there's oil. Oil is an issue, but we had other ways to, we have other avenues to get that kind of resource. Right. Um, and so it didn't, it didn't like dramatically affect the economy over in the United States. It, I mean, I think those chickens are coming to roost a little bit, but at least not in the moment. But now with the Ukraine Russia conflict, everyone's saying like, wow, you know, wars affect us, even if we're not directly involved, which the United States is involved in in the Ukrainian conflict. But to make a long story short, the self-interest point is we will, the United States will become a richer nation if Africa as a continent is thriving and we're able to to trade with them and, you know, we're able to form these economic bonds, which means if the United States becomes a richer nation, your family's better off, you're personally better off, everybody's better better off, everyone gets lifted up. That's kind of a, a secular case to even pay attention to the continent of Africa and how Israel's affecting that change, as you say, more so than any other country. Yes, ma'am. We, um, because, for example, the number one region for global terrorism uh, right now is Africa. Obviously, that affects not just people in Nigeria, right? Not just people in Sudan, that affects the world because that terrorism is exported. We tell people all the time, just as an example. When the world turned a blind eye in the 60s and 70s to the Palestinian-style terrorism led by Yasser Arafat against the Israelis, it was to our own detriment. Right? And it was Black leaders who sounded the alarm by addressing the basic Black American Support Israel Committee and basically it told the United Nations, you keep ignoring what the PLO is doing to the Israelis. You're going to have extremist organizations with a grudge against society all over the world. He was predicting global terrorism. Global terrorism mm-hmm. was not a thing in the late 1960s, 1970s, right? We knew terrorism was, right? But bombs going off in airports and all the kind of stuff, that was directed at the Israelis. When the world didn't care, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, guess what? Everybody deals with terrorism now, right? And who they call mm-hmm. on, whether they like Israel or not, they call on Israel, right? Because they know that right. Israel knows what to do. That's another one of those negative examples of why it's important to know. But yes, absolutely. Israel, in terms of its technologies and all of those things, how it shares those things, how it it, it is the greatest ally to Africa in that sense. And you're talking about these economies and grain and other types of productions. And you're talking about the platinum that goes in many of our, goes in, I believe, satellites. I mean, there's, I mean, the cobalt, all these types of things, yeah. the batteries that they use, oh, we need electric power. What do you think they're getting the cobalt from, right? These things, things are coming, <laughs> most of them out of Africa. What if you had these thriving nations that are trading these things uh, like any other nation would, right? And the jobs that are created and the poverty that is eradicated, right? For evil people who don't care how they get a rape, pillage, or plunder, no, they don't really care, right? But those people like Scar on on, on on Lion King, right? He doesn't. He's gonna eat everything until everything's gone, right? Mm-hmm. 
But for the wise leader, he and she recognizes that the more my neighbors prosper, I can prosper as well. We can help each other. So you're talking about the type of poverty that's there. You have African nations that are still dealing with HIV AIDS there. I mean, I have my South African friends who explained all these things to me. If we can globally see that come to pass. And again, for the, for the libertarian nature, that doesn't mean we have to know, right? Doesn't mean that America has to go and try to fix everything. But at the very least, how about we help encourage those regional partnerships that are actually there, right? And see those things thrive. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most wonderful uh, uh, military technologies that exists in Israel is called the Iron Dome, right? It actually mm-hmm. shoots down missiles that come from Gaza, particularly Islamic Jihad and Hamas. That technology was developed. Some of it was by American military funding. Now, here's the thing. Some people say we shouldn't be funding those. You can make that case, right? You know, Because Israel's capable of doing what it what it can do on its own. I'm not, that's not my case. Isn't my, my point isn't about American military funding. My point is that that technology America goes, that's great. So now Israel is helping America develop its version of the Iron Dome because it'd be great to have something that shoots down enemy fire that's actually coming, right? Mm-hmm. So some of the technology that's developed there then helps other people remain safe where they are, right? So these technologies are helping people live happier, more productive lives. Everybody wins. Again, unless you don't really care that the poverty could affect everybody and the terrorism can affect everybody because like you said 9-11 teaches us it, it may have started somewhere but it's going to come here in a minute right that's mm-hmm. actually going to be so the blind eye to a certain degree um actually becomes the detriment to us if we're not at least aware of what's actually happening and everything so yeah africa and israel that relationship it's Bibi netanyahu the prime minister years ago said himself he says, Africa is our top priority, is a continent on the rise and can rise to unbelievable heights, right? These yeah. Israelis saying this about the region. They're pretty mm-hmm. smart people. They see that type of potential. It's because it's there, right? And so we're excited about what the prospects would be. Ipsy won't even be called Ipsy at that point anymore. We won't, that won't, our mandate won't be what it is right mm-hmm. now to the same degree. It will be, we've already started a for-profit organization um, that will be unveiled later on. That's not associated with the issue, something else because we have African business leaders and tech people who are talking to us about their relationship with Israel, wanting to do some things together. That's a completely different mandate than Ipsy, right? Yeah. So we said, yeah. okay, well, we need to start another thing here so that we can facilitate that, which I'll say some more about those things in the coming months and everything like that, but it's it's amazing. So we're already seeing it happen. Young tech people in Africa, in, in uh, Benin and in Nigeria who are, coders and writers and everything working with Israeli firms and they're, they're it's just it's amazing what's going on right now so we're excited to see it okay yeah that's that's super exciting and yeah once all that stuff gets launched we'll have to bring you back on the podcast to talk about all that kind of good stuff um but let's move on a little bit I was gonna t- I was gonna say okay let's talk about it from the Christian perspective and then like the black perspective or vice versa or black Christian but let's just kind of fold those into one black Christians because that's your primary, that's your target audience, really. Because there's there's a lot of people, and I'm, and I understand their case that they're like, look, it's kind of similar to kind of an isolationist type of philosophy. Is that Israel? God bless them. Good luck, Africa. I have a soft spot for Africa. I know my historical roots are there, but Black Americans got a lot of problems. I'm trying to clean up house first, you know, I'm trying to make my own bed as Jordan Peterson would say before I, you know, walk outside and try to fix other problems. And I'm sure you get this all the time. Like pastor Dumasani, you're a talented guy. 
why do you spend so much time on another continent and another country? Should should the average is this something where you're like, don't worry, I'm taking care of it because you don't have to except in your positive support and that kind of thing? Or do you think black Christians should be actively doing more to support the relationship between Israel and Africa? And if so, how does just your average Joe just trying to, you know, you know, live for the Lord as much as he or she can, what should they be doing to change or not change in that area? I think some of them should. Again, I'm going to return to the theme of that personal journey. Mm-hmm. Some people are going to see, for example, the work of Ipsy. And we the same way I talked about the whole Jewish roots thing and how they respond. I've been in black churches. I've been in colleges. I've been in different places where I've been a lecture touching on some of the themes you and I are discussing now. And I've gotten the different responses. So some people are like, thank you very much. I didn't know some of that information. Well, you know, or like you said, uh, that's, yeah, that's, but, but what about this? I'm dealing with this in Chicago. I'm dealing with this in LA. Type. And then there'll be this other group that going, okay, what you said completely resonates. What can I do? I, I feel like I need to be a part of. And we fully recognize that those are going to be different responses. So the first answer to your question, should people be doing more? Those who feel to, yeah. Everyone's not going to feel it. Everybody's not going to have a, a sense of urgency. It's not going to be important to be on the radar, right? Let's say the, the average black pastor, he'll say, hey, I got these things going on, right? I, you know, this is important, but it's not that important. So this was, uh, this is what I'm going to do. And, and there have been some pastors like that who will say, we support you, right? Um, we'll it will come, you can speak and share. Uh, and they'll, and I've said this to those pastors as well. I said, you know what? We do this and provide information for you. Because you, and I've been a pastor as well, you may not have time as capable as you are and gifted as you are, man and woman of God. Um, Ipsy does this to give you information, uh, to share this with your congregation. And then when we take our trips to Israel, if we're doing this Ipsy thing, the ambassador type of thing, if you want people. And that becomes a, it's a beautiful relationship because that pastor saying, okay, this is as far as I can go, right? But I do want you to share this information. So all that becomes extremely important because, again, as a pastor, like anybody else with their walk with God, you have whatever your ministry is, right? This church focuses in on, you know, uh, homelessness, right? That's like a real emphasis for them. This church has a women's shelter that they operate. These things are very, so everyone has the, everyone can't do everything. I don't care if the church is 20,000 people in it. No congregation can do everything because then they're going to become ineffective in everything. You have to do what God is calling you to do. And for us, it's very much a ministry when it comes to uh, that type of thing. And then for those, Connie, who feel that pull, right? They feel this call. I feel an obligation to my Christian brothers and sisters in Africa. I recognize that Christians are being slaughtered by the tens of thousands in Nigeria every year. And that's just not okay with me, right? I heard the same message that this other person heard and he kind of went home. He's, you know, I'll pray for them. And me as I go, no, I, I gotta do something else, right? That's always the case, right? When Paul said, we're all members of one body jointly fit together, right? That everybody's not gonna respond to the same message the same way. We are here for those who say, you know what? I want to go a step further, right? I, I've learned it. I, I watched your video. I went to the thing. This is really great. Um, but I want to have more. Can you come speak to this group, right? Let me know when the next group of MC ambassadors is going to, I want to apply. The people have said that. Mm-hmm. Show me, send me the link when it's live. I yeah. want to, I have to know, I want to. So that's part of what's going on. We find that sometimes it touches on something than someone that was dormant. 
in an awakened. They said, wait, this is important to me, right? This Israel thing is important to me. This, so yeah, for us, it depends. We share the message and then, you know, like God, the word God said, one plants, one waters, and God gives the increase. We plant, we water, right? We do that. And then when it's time for that whole thing to germinate and become whatever, that we let God take care of that part, yeah. right? I'll say this last thing. Some people who heard we did a couple of years ago, ah, it's poppycock, right? Two years later, like, wait, I looked you up again because I needed to, something happened and I really wanted to, we've seen that before as well, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's why we do what we do. Hope I answered that question. Yeah, you did. And um, basically it comes down to follow the call. Like everybody Just, can't tackle every issue out there, right? If your passion is homelessness, yes. go solve homelessness. God yes, will call you to where just listen. And if he's calling you to the Israel, you know, Africa connection, then you can get involved through Ipsy, which is great because um, is there any other organization like you out there? To our knowledge, no. Um, and then I'll say that to be unique, to, to our knowledge, no. Just like when BASIC existed, there was nothing else like it at the time, right? We also believe that we're not going to be be the anomaly. There are many pro organizations uh, none to our knowledge are black run, right? Mm -hmm. They have black outreach, which is not a bad thing at all. I think that's fine, right? right? I, just, like, I was the diversity outreach coordinator for Christians United for Israel. We worked at the, the black churches and Hispanic and that all the time. Once again, you know, there's no black church. Yes, people like know that. I'm, we're talking about the <laughs> message, right? We might go to a bilingual church and Hispanic church, right? You might be saved as just like he saved, but you don't know Spanish. So now we're going to do this in Spanish because that mm -hmm. might be the best thing to happen here. We've done it in Chinese. We've done it in different cultural expressions to share the same universal message. So no, to our knowledge, it doesn't exist. And it also, Connie, let me, let me just interject this real quickly. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in here real quick. Black Lives Matter. Formed in 2013 after the death of the man who killed Trayvon Martin. Uh, became a household name in 2014 after the death of Mike Brown. We're not going to get all the details of the, those cases because that's a whole other conversation about mm -hmm. that kill, how to get all this type of thing, and then on and on and on. Of course, exploded to the stratosphere after the George Floyd 2020, right? Right. Black Lives Matter ostensibly is supposed to be concerned about issues of police brutality, that and the other. Here it is, Free Free Palestine. What? What I've told people often is that Black Americans traditionally did not get into the Palestinian conflict. It came for us. Dr. King mm -hmm. and those people weren't sitting around like, going, gee, you won't have anything else to do. Let's start defending Israel and the Jews. No, that's not how that happened. What happened was people were lying on Israel. Anti-Semitism was becoming more and more of a thing that he had to push back on, particularly within the social justice movements, because these Marxists were telling people that the Jews are your problem. Mm -hmm. They were coming and bringing an anti-Zionist message to people who were fighting for things like voting rights, right? So you have black leaders going, this is a problem, right? Okay, we're already fighting for what we're fighting for. These knuckleheads are making it worse by coming and blaming the Jews, a la Louis Farrakhan. Mm -hmm. Blah, 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 empowerment, blah, 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 empowerment, but screw the Jews. Like, wait, hold on, dude. Where did you go from here to this? Oh, because the Jews have historically blah, 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 blah. Okay, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. So you're going to blame the Jews for the translated faith rate, period, right? The Jews are the ones. <laughs> Right? How does that help me as a black man? Right, seventy-five yeah. percent uh, 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 illiteracy rate in schools in California by two thousand seventeen. How does blaming the Jews help me? It doesn't answer my own question. It doesn't. So what you had was organizations like Black Lives Matter and police brutality because Israel. Israel planes trains police, and that's why they teach police to be all. Oh, that's a lie. Not only is it a lie. How does that help Ferguson? How does right. that help? 
Chicago, right? So you're using the bodies of dead black people, standing on them, I like what Ben Shapiro told um, Pierce Morgan years ago, you're standing on these bodies, right? To demonize the Jews. Once again, it became our fight, right? So now I got to not just fight for justice here, I got to turn and pivot to the Jew haters and say, okay, and what you're doing? It's about defund the police. Are you kidding me? Nobody in the black community was voting for that, right? But mm -hmm. you cloak yourself in this thing called Black Lives Matter. You wave this Palestinian flag. So like you just said, Connie, if someone can make the case that Pastor Musani, what you're doing is great, but it's not really in my wheelhouse. I'm busy here. Mike, I submit to you, I understand that. So why the heck is Black Lives Matter in Baltimore talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as it relates to what's going on in Baltimore. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. This is part of how we exist. It's why BASIC existed as well, right? This is not help. Actually, it's making it worse. So after something like defund the police, Connie, as you know, you're a numbers person. The numbers of dead Black children when the cops were either defunded or began to pull back. Who paid for that? We paid for that. That's black people. The, the black people paid for the Jew hatred that was manifested through groups like Jewish Force for Peace and Black Lives Matter, right? So this has been the case for the longest. Here we are, and it's completely unfair, right? Here you are, South Chicago, my my friend. Shout out to Corey Brooks out there in South Chicago, doing yeah. all he can. Are they killing it, right? How does it help him for a bunch of Jew haters to come talking about burn it all down? And what? Wait, what? Wait, wait. Why are you know what? Even if I don't give a nickel's worth of whatever about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you brought it to my house. Why? Wait, I don't even care about that thing. That's eight thousand miles away from here. I'm dealing with this. So for people who look at the whole pro-Israel thing and then say, "Why are you talking about it?" One of our responses is that, oh, it's in your house. You may not realize it or not, but it's you're dealing with it. You're absolutely dealing with it, right? So yes, that's what yeah. I had to get that off my chest. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. And, you know, I have, this is our foundational episode. Really, like all this, this first round of episodes of, of the podcast for um, quite a few of our guests are kind of foundational. We, we haven't even really gotten into the spicy stuff. I wanted people to meet Pastor Dumasani Washington, understand why you are the man that you are. And then, you know, we can do part two and part three. And as it's appropriate, go down the line, you know, because yes, there is a lot of, you know, you mentioned Louis Farrakhan, Black Lives Matter. We haven't even gotten into MLK and Malcolm X and all this stuff that's in in his book, by the way. So, you know, if you're like, I'm hungry for more, two hours of conversation just wasn't enough. Um, you can pick up Zionism in the Black Church on Amazon or on their website, and he will dig into a lot of the stuff. And actually, I wanted to get into more of the spiritual side of things because your book is 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 actually, I would say, almost there's there's you talk about scripture and, and you reference the Bible and that kind of thing. But it's not, I don't want people to think, oh, this is just going to be a Bible book. It's really not. You get into the, the geopolitical stuff, historical stuff. You, you really cover your bases in the book. So I think anybody, even if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, you're like, eh, this isn't really resonating with me. I mean, I would still highly recommend this book to you. And I think you'll get a lot out of it. My final question. So we're, I'm going to do my final question to you plus a speed round of quick, easy, kind of fun questions. There's sure. maybe 10 of them. And then sure. we will close it out with all the references of where people can find you, that kind of good stuff. So sure. my final question is, like I said, I could ask you a million more questions, but I'm going to end it with this. Christians who, and, and this is something I've personally run across more than once, and you you refer to, to Jewish people as our brothers and sisters. 
most Christians I meet don't hate Jews at all. They're not anti-Semitic. They kind of are almost indifferent or they feel like they would hear your story about meeting the young Jewish man and they would, they'd say, okay, he took the wrong tact. He should know more about the history between Jews and Christians and that kind of thing. But when it comes down to it, Christians believe Jews are wrong, right? We believe that their theology is incorrect in a huge way, right? It's not the difference between a Presbyterian arguing with a Baptist, right? It's There's a huge theological break there. And so there's some people who would say, well, I wouldn't necessarily consider them my, my brothers and sisters. I mean... Yes, my foundation came from the Jewish tradition. I don't wish them ill, but I do wish that they would convert to Christianity because I think I'm, I've got the truth, right? Um, and because actually out of a place of love, you could argue, well, I, I love these Jewish people. And so I want them to know the truth and I want them to have a relationship with Jesus. So what is your opinion on, on evangelizing Jews? There are Jewish people who claim that that's anti-Semitic to even mm-hmm. attempt at all, even if you take a better tact than maybe you did back in the day. So how do you think, and, and this is, I know it's, it's going to be your opinion, you're not, and you're not somebody who likes to tell Christians what to do, but what is your approach there and what is your, what is your opinion on how Christians should approach their Jewish brothers and sisters, whether they consider them brothers and sisters or not? Maybe they just kind of consider them Yes, colleagues ma'am. or distant cousins. They're not my brother and sister, but they're my cousin once removed. Yes, um, what's the approach? I, I want to first clarify, making sure that when, and when I'm using that term, brothers and sisters, it, it's, it's been a habit for decades, right? I'll be talking about something while referring to my Muslim, I'll say my Muslim brothers and sisters, right? I, okay. I don't mean that in the literal sense in terms of our faith traditions. Obviously, they're very, very different, right? But yeah. I mean that in a familial type of communal thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I've, I've done that before. So that's it, but it's just a habit. I couldn't even tell you where it started, right? So it's it's very much a um, a, a verbal cultural thing for me. I want to I want to say that first and foremost. Okay. And secondly, when it comes to our Jewish brothers and sisters, when I say that in that way. I mean it, obviously, first and foremost, like I said, communally, right? There, there are brothers and sisters, but also in the faith. What I mean by that is that uh, I heard one pastor years ago say that they're, they're older brothers and sisters. In other words, our faith came from theirs, uh, that our Old Testament is their Tanakh. And we wouldn't even know Jesus was the Messiah unless the Tanakh defined who the Messiah was, right? In other words, he didn't just show up on the scene and say, hey, I got an idea, right? No, he's actually teaching Torah. He's actually observing these very same feasts. He's observing these very, very same laws. And so it's, there's something that's actually happening in which he is fulfilling, as we had say Christians, we'd be fulfilling some of what we say some, because everything has not yet been fulfilled, but fulfilling these things that were spoken of, of him. So when it comes to our relationship with our Jewish brothers and sisters, and this has obviously now been my advice for years, we, as the apostle said, have to always have a reason for the hope that is within us. We have to be prepared to minister the gospel, to share uh, our faith, to talk about who Jesus is, not just from a personal standpoint. Here's what the word of God says. And I say that to my Christian friends all the time for those relationships that you have with your Jewish brothers and sisters. This has been my approach. I have that conversation within the context of that relationship. In other words, when it's, and I trust God for that, when it's time to have, well, let's have the, what I call the Jesus conversation. That is in, in my adult life, since the time I was in college, has exclusively happened when my Jewish friends have come and said to me, 
I want to talk about this. I want to talk about mm -hmm. why you believe what you believe. Connie, I see in your life, I've watched you. And to me, that becomes the blessing because there, it's not just a head thing, it's a heart thing. Like I've watched you. And I want to talk about what I what what is it's making you tick. I, I want to I want to know more about that. So I would say to Christians, for where our Jewish brothers and sisters are concerned, my advice is always have that relationship, have that fellowship, whether you're a pastor with the rabbi or whatever, and trust God in that when the time comes for you all to have the conversation and you share your faith in Jesus, that that will happen in a way that you'll know that it happened. For me, it, those things happen when I'm asked about it, right? They, they'll, mm -hmm. let's talk about this. Tell me about this. I've had Jewish friends say, I mean, you know what? You're my pastor. Yeah, I know you're not a, you're, you're not, you're not Jewish or like that, but I've had my Jewish friends tell me that these are always private conversations. I would never, I've never made them public because I don't want to get, I just last week, I had a conversation with a Jewish friend and we were actually talking about spiritual warfare. We we're talking about mm -hmm. some very, very difficult things. And they said to me, thank you for making yourself available to me, Pastor, because I just had some of the questions, right? Oh, you go talk to your rabbi. How dare you talk to me? Now, I'm just talking to them <laughs> like I would talk to anyone else. But they're saying, OK, here's this Christian pastor listening to me. He knows that I'm Jewish. And I have some questions about what we call, we joke and say, his side of the book, right? I read blah, blah, and mm -hmm. Luke. I want to talk, right? So, I, so for me, I have that conversation. I say again, it would not happen if they did not trust me to have it, right? Meaning yeah. that if they thought there was some sort of, some sort of surreptitious type of, I'm just waiting to pounce on them and then give them a cross and pour some holy water on them, right? Do I want to <laughs> share with them about Jesus? Absolutely. And I'm open to that, but that for me, that will happen when they feel that it's, and to me, that's simultaneous is God kind of opening up that door. So I hope I'm answering your question, Connie. I, one of the things my Jewish friends said to me, he said, Dumasani, I know that you preach Jesus. You preach salvation and everything. And come, I, you know, whether they open air things that we've done there in California or in, in our congregation and everything. And tell me, I wouldn't expect you to do anything else. If you did it, I would be wondering, okay, how's he a Christian? And he doesn't, you know, teach about Jesus being the Messiah. But what he was getting at was that, You've never come at me and said, hey, you, you, right? So yeah. you've allowed that door to be open, right? And so, yeah, so I, I think, I hope I'm answering that and saying that, yeah, they, I don't shy away from him, from, from him being Lord of my life, any of those types of things, but that doesn't become the thing that allows me to either interact with my Jewish brothers and sisters, right? And again, I say it again, I don't even think about Jewish brothers and sisters because that's right. for me, like, as if we were talking yeah. about Muslims, right? Not Muslim brothers yeah. and sisters. So that, I hope that makes sense. I hope I somewhere answered your question, Connie. Yeah, if yeah. Not, oh, know. yeah. No, okay. you did. Totally. And you and you touched on that earlier and yes, as well. But it's probably the number one thing, at least at my kind of corner of, um, you know, I go to like a classical kind of reformed church is very similar to classical Presbyterianism. And that's, these people love to evangelize yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Absolutely. I love it too. Right. And so right, it's, yeah. it's aggressive and it's like, the, they do not folks in my community do not mess around with the truth and right. it can be brutal sometimes. And sometimes that's not the right tact and everybody knows that, but I just think right. that's good to put out there. Well, can I, can I interject just one quick thing uh, yeah. with that? So remember the conversation we're having about the whole thing and Easter Passover and, and mm -hmm. people doing these things and not doing these things. So, okay. Um, and I'll do this as quickly as I can. I know this will probably be a pickup later on. We have a, you know, theological conversation. 
one thing that Christians aren't often aware of in not just sharing Jesus with their Jewish brother or sister, right? But in then this attempt at conversion. And so now I, I'm sharing this with you and now here should be your faith walk. In other words, I'm, how do I say this? Because I, I want to make sure that I'm saying the concise way. So Connie is my Jewish friend. We've now talked about Jesus and I'm letting her know that if you want to, I'll pray with you. You can accept Jesus as your savior. Connie says, you know what? I've heard all that and everything. Yes, I want to do that. Okay, we pray and boom, right? You with me? Mm-hmm. All right, Connie, you're saved now. All that Sabbath stuff, Passover, <laughs> and all that, man, I'll keep it all that. And how about to get all that? Oh, you got to say all that stuff. You know what? Your, here's your new agenda. You go to your Christmas celebration here. Your Easter celebration is here. Pork is good now because Jesus made all the, you following me? Yeah, yeah. Right. So because that's one of those other things that oftentimes Christians don't understand that they define their Christian, their Jewish brothers and sisters getting, quote unquote, saved by them, not just making a confession, but all that, quote unquote, Jewish stuff. Right. All you need to you. You really love Jesus if you start eating ham and yeah. right. right? That, that's the and mm-hmm. and. And you and you come to my Christmas cantata and our Easter pageant and what you're going to do because why? And so what I'm doing is that when you stop being Jewish, then you're really saved. Many Christians wouldn't even say that directly in their mind, mm-hmm. but that's what they're thinking. This this is why for the Christian that goes, I'm going to celebrate. I'm, I'm going to observe Shabbat. He freed us from us. So we start quoting Romans and others who are completely out of context. Right? We start mm-hmm. saying. Freedom from the law is no more that Old Testament. You mean the Old Testament that says honor your father and your mother? Yeah. Oh, wait, no, no, yeah. okay, wait. That part of the Old Testament, keep that part, right? Keep okay, let's get the cookie cutter, let, let's let's get the scissors and let's cut out of Deuteronomy, right? That mm-hmm. that becomes the slippery slope. Does that make sense? Yes, yep, yeah. absolutely. And I yes, think me. it's uh it's actually similar to me now thinking as a parent to little kids. One yes, of my me. goals is I want them to think for themselves, right? But right, there's a right, chance right. that they will think for themselves and they won't come to the conclusions that I yes. come to, right? Which is kind of like scary as a parent. You're like, oh no, what if they, yes, what if, and then you can be like, well, I achieved, I thought I achieved what I wanted to. I got them to yes. think for themselves, but then it backfired because now they don't go to the same church as me or whatever. Yes, and I agree yes. with you 100% Christians when we are evangelizing and we are successfully, you know, we lead someone to Christ, whether yes, they're a Jew or not, they're yes, still going to take their own journey, right? And we can't be like, well, I I converted you. So that means you're Baptist now because I'm Baptist. Like they might not be, you know, and you got to like let them, you know, so what you just said really resonates with me. So I appreciate that. You said was powerful as well because the journey is sometimes long. So who they are becoming may unfold over a long period of time and we may not see that part of it as well. That's where we have to trust God as well. So, hey, God, I understand what they're doing. It doesn't really make sense to me. I'm even a little concerned about this, but I'm going to have to trust you. Uh, okay. That the, and then we're not talking about blatant sin. Okay. Now he's like, you know, cheating on his wife. Okay. That's different. That's okay. But right. we're not talking about that. Right. We're talking about his expression is different. I would not have done that. And I, and I'll say this to people who are listening for those Christians that I've seen who began to do Jewish roots things, they had family and friends who cut them off. Hmm. Because they felt that because they observed Passover, they were no longer saved. Because they began to honor Sabbath, that's how ingrained it was for them. So it destroyed 
that I've seen those things. My heart's gone. Yeah. I've seen it from pastors who did whole series of messages about how these people in this congregation, how dare they go to a Seder. I, I'll never mm-hmm. forget the large congregation is there. They, they So they would listen to this one. I'm not going to name any names. So we're in congregation. We have a small congregation. There's a very large church that was there. Some people would be kind of sneak. You know, you you sneak going to house party. No, they would sneak and come to our Shabbat service, right? They would sneak and come to our Seder because their pastor put out an APB on them. Like, look, you people are, he started Uh. no joke. So there's an underground messianic movement in his church. Oh my goodness. That only grew the more he came for them. So I've seen those types of things. Christians who were like Paul thought they were doing a completely good thing, right? They're like going, yeah, you, and he's up there and just ripping them a new one every Sunday. I'm sitting there going, my God. So they would still do it, but they would do it like they're being persecuted, right? They're like going, yeah. don't, don't say Passover. <laughs> they're whispering Shabbat. They're, they're, no joke. So I've seen that kind of reign of terror that passes abroad in the congregation because they began to do this or do that. So yes, ma'am. So that, I'm that, done. I, I yeah, that, that all comes to tack too, right? Like a like a, a preacher yelling at his congregation. If he yes. if he really is concerned, that's that's fine. You can be concerned, but you sit down yes, and you have a conversation with those yes, people ma'am. and you have, open the door and then you say, I think yes, you're wrong ma'am. about this. And then you make a case anyways. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes, we, like I said, there'll be a part two, part three, part four, part five. Yeah. So yes, let's please. get into just, this is something we're going to be doing on every podcast. It's just random, yep. quick, quick fire questions just for fun. Sure. So don't think about it. You got to like spit out your answer yeah. real quick. It's 10 questions and then we'll let you plug all the, all the places people can follow you. And we'll mention that upcoming event as well. And we'll close it out. So 10 <clears throat> quick fire questions. All right. MLK or Malcolm X? Oh God. Quickly, quickly, I mean, quickly. Quickly. Quick. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> okay. Jordan oh, or LeBron? Jordan. Does pineapple go on pizza? No. Biggest misconception about you? That I'm an extrovert. Most underrated black intellectual? Uh, I wanna, I'm going to say Thomas Sowell. People don't think so, but no, Thomas Sowell. Worst part of being black? Yeah, that's really hard. Um, <laughs> people's, not a trick question. I know, Hussie, that people's <laughs> false impressions of. Black or African-American? Um, black. Do you celebrate Juneteenth? Yes. Black History Month, yay or nay? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm going to say yay, but a qualifier, but yay. Yeah. And your favorite cartoon movie? My favorite cartoon movie? Um, oh, shoot. I know this, but it's it's slipping me. Um, I'm going to just say Lion King for now. Fair enough. Does that, does that count? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. For sure. Uh, yeah. So please... People can follow Ibsi and you. So you have different accounts. Let's actually break that down a little bit. You have personal accounts and Ibsi accounts, right? On Twitter, yes, Instagram, and yes, Facebook? Ma'am. Or is there just Ibsi? Uh, uh, okay. Just my personal one. There's a ministry one on Facebook. So on for Ibsi, uh, uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and there's a YouTube page. So just go to on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Go to IBSI now. It's on there. And, and then Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel is on YouTube. Um, and then also there's a sub stack as well. Um, Africa Israel Weekly is what it's called. Just go to ibsi, ibsi.substack.com. Right? And then you can find me, Dumisani, as long as you spell the name right, there's not a whole lot of us. It is a South African name, which is another story. Uh, but yeah. D-U-M-I-S-A-N-I. And no, I'm not South African. It's an adopted name, but D-U-M-I-S-A-N-I. Uh, and so uh, Washington, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. I am not on Facebook, but Dumisani Washington Ministries 
is a newer page on Facebook, and there'll be more postings on there, including our Holy Land tour, which is going to actually happen in December. So, um, so yeah, do look out for that. And taking... Ipsy has a clubhouse as well that's been a Ipsy little bit a paused, but coming yes. back, right? It is coming back. We used to do a, a weekly thing, but it will be we'll resume that. So sometime around Juneteenth, we'll resume our clubhouse uh, discussions. And the website where people can find when they they forget how to where to follow you is ibsi.org, correct? Absolutely. And all the links are there, the social media, YouTube and everything. Yes, if you're interested in some of these programs he has, like the ambassadorships for, for regular folk like me that I participate in, there's the pastor's program that's coming up. If you're a pastor and listening to this, all of those programs were, will kind of culminate over the years. This is going to be an ongoing tradition of a new event called The Gathering happening in September. Do you want to um, talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. September the 10th, that is a Sunday, the second Sunday evening at 5 p.m. on Charlotte, in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's our annual gala. The first one will be this uh, September on that 10th. Mark the date, save the date. Sunday, September the 10th, 5 p.m. The Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel will host its first annual gala called The Gathering. If you're in the area and you're just curious, um, you want to learn more, you are welcome to purchase a ticket and attend. You don't have to be involved in one of the ambassador programs or anything like that. A little bit of curiosity is all you need because it's going to be fun too, right? It's a formal event. Yes, It'll be a good time. You'll learn a lot. You'll be rubbing elbows with lots of interesting, curious people like yourself. So I Absolutely. think that we hit all the things that we wanted to hit in this awesome conversation. We will talk more. It's been so good to see you here. And actually, you know, I learned some stuff too. I I figured oh, I'll know most, most of what he says because I know him and I've read his book, but I learned some some stuff too. So that's great. Do you have any closing thoughts, Pastor Dumasani, before we sign out here? No, I don't. I just, I know we've been talking for a while, which is fine. Uh, but um, I don't, other than just, I, I appreciate you again, Connie, inviting me on. Again, I want to say again, I appreciate the work of Free Black Thought. Uh, just the timing is so crucial uh, to have conversations that are different, right? Um, within the Black community and, and, and open to everyone uh, chiming in and everything. But I think the timing is very crucial, just like an MC. So, no, thank you. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Yeah, agreed. And I'll, I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Kyle. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Free Black Thought.